Good evening and welcome to El Oso Fumar Takes. This is our 282nd take live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studio of Azel, Texas. I'm your host, Barry Duplessis, as always, and I'm so proud, so pleased, and so privileged to be with you all tonight. This is going to be a fantastic show, a blast from the past. I'm so excited to have this gentleman back on my podcast, and we're going to be talking about all things catching up, great things with him, but also things talking about things in the past as well. It's been a long time since we've had this distinguished gentleman as part of the show, but we're going to make it worth everybody's while here, and I'm so excited to have him back. So, But before we get to formal introductions, we do have to thank the people that make this show possible. That, of course, is our sponsors, and tonight's show is sponsored by Drew Estate. Drew Estate is at it once again, allowing another freestyle live pack. Uh, that they've sometimes been called mystery packs, and they offer a pre, uh, a pretty unique pre-launch experience for consumers who wish to be deeply engaged in each of the new Drew Estate's new product releases. The exclusive packs introduced during the Freestyle Live Special Edition broadcast held uh, last month have an MSRP value of about 40 bucks, but are actually worth way more. Each pack contains three mystery cigars without brand new identification, a sleek Freestyle Live high-quality torch lighter, cigar cutter, and a Freestyle Live leather strap keychain. In addition to these premium items, every event pack comes with a QR code. Uh, and a live badge that's equipped with uh, that specific item that allows purchasers to enter a sweepstakes for a chance to win it. Pretty, pretty awesome prizes, actually. The grand prize is a luxury custom pool table that's valued over $11,000. And the first prize is a laptop valued over $4,000 as well. Additionally, 10 lucky entrants, 10 lucky entrants will win custom subculture studio ashtrays valued above $150 a piece. So fantastic stuff from Drew Estate, as always. And the winner of these uh, contests will actually be announced on March 14th, along with uh, the new brand identification for the mystery cigars that are part of the packaging. So so just to tune in uh, just a little under a month from today, March 14th, on Drew Estate's Facebook page for Drew, Style, Drew Estate Freestyle Live. Find out the new brand of cigar that they're bringing to market and find out who the lucky winners are for the fantastic uh, prizes that they have uh, available. So again, Cheers to everyone out there. So this is welcome back. This is our 282nd take. And without further ado, it's my pleasure, my privilege, and my honor to welcome back Mr. Nick Jimenez of so many things, including the Pancone Podcast, El Vecino Cigar Lounge, and much, much more, and Dade Magazine as well. Nick, welcome back. How are you doing, my friend? Man, I can't remember the last time I was called a distinguished gentleman, much less one people were proud and privileged to be talking to. This is very exciting for me right now so thanks for all of that well man i i really gosh man i enjoyed so i enjoyed so much so many of our conversations and having you back on the show um you know gosh it's it, it has been years man it's 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 crazy how long it's been um but i'm so yeah. glad to have you back thank you so much for joining us tonight no thank you man thank you it's uh it's crazy right how how long it's been i'm sure that uh you know uh you've had a version of that experience with a lot of your other guests. Uh, but you know, especially for me having been away from cigars for a bit and then finding myself back in it, I've had a lot of those experiences where it's like, you know, talking to somebody for the first time and, and then you do the math. It's like, Oh man, it's been six, seven years. Um, uh, I don't know how long it's been. I forget when we did, uh, uh, that, that last take, but it's, it's been quite a while and it's, it's cool to, uh, be able to do it and have it feel like you haven't skipped a beat, which I think is is the thing that uh, pulls people back into cigars for sure. Oh, absolutely, man! I think that's I think that's what brings us all together in the first place, man. It's just this, like um, this unbelievable, this unbelievable community and everything like that. And like you said, it has 
I, I find like, I, I think you're absolutely right. I've had guests that it's been, you know, it'll be a few years since I've had them on and it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it at all. Yeah. Like you kind of like don't skip a beat, which is pretty crazy and stuff. So, um, we're going to get into everything that's new with you and kind of catch up with you here in just a little bit. But uh, we have a tradition here on the show. That's uh, it's this is how long it has been for you. We've been doing this tradition for a while, but we weren't doing this back the last time you were on here. Uh, I have a few cigars and I always ask my guests um, what cigar they would like me to smoke. So I have a few cigars for you to choose from. Um, wow. And uh, I just grabbed a, a mishmash, actually, but uh, of stuff. But uh, here's what I got. Um so I've got my number one cigar of the year from this uh, past year, the Gran Habano 20th anniversary, uh, Capitolio One. So here we go. I've got the uh, uh, my number one cigar from last year, uh, from excuse me, the previous year, the Espinosa Boxpress Crema Toro. Okay. Uh, Tatuaje Cabaguan. Uh, okay. Romeo and Julieta, the Envy. I don't know if you've had a chance to smoke this cigar. Um, or uh, Black Label Trading Company, uh, the Bishop's Blend from last year. Got it. Uh, man, you know, I'm, I'm not basing this on any knowledge of what you're into. I would like to be nice to you and, I don't know, try to pick something that I think you'll is mostly your wheelhouse, but I can't do that. So I, I can't... It's been too long since I had a tatuaje, so I'm going to let you have one for me. Sounds good. The tatuaje the Capaguan. Yeah. Sounds good. That will be my cigar. Fantastic. What are you smoking tonight? I am smoking Aganorsa uh, Leaf Aniversario Corojo in Toro. Nice. That is uh, one of my go-tos uh, for... A number of reasons they're you know i love the cigar but they're also uh we have a good relationship with them here at abyssino which i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit and they've been uh supportive of pancom podcast which i'm sure we'll also talk about a little bit for sure for sure um so yeah i thought like well, i'm gonna go ahead and light my, my cigar and everything here um i know you've been away from cigars for a bit but everything but i mean like were you still enjoying them on, on occasion or not as frequently or Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I uh, just to put a little bit of context around that. So I uh, left Cigar Snob magazine where I was the senior editor in the beginning of 2020. And um, from then, of course, the, the world was about to turn upside down. I don't think any of us knew how upside down it was about to turn. And I was very sloppy with how generous I was with my cigar snob cigar stash. Everybody got cigars way too much and too frequently. Uh, but fortunately, uh, you know, I, I, we, part of why I had left was to, to give more time to Pancom podcasts and some of these other projects that I was taking on. And uh, we had some cigar sponsors. So I was smoking a lot of Aganorsa and a lot of Drew Estate. Uh, through that period um but uh but yeah I, I i never stopped smoking maybe not as heavily as i was when i was at cigar snob but but for sure i was smoking a good amount that's awesome man um i'm 
I think it's it's interesting. Like I've I've had some people that I've that I've had the opportunity to interview, or just people that I know that have kind of stepped away from cigars for a bit. Um, and they're still, I think that's what's really great about it. They're still smoking. Like, uh, um, oh yeah. I think if anything, it's a, a like when reps or anything like leave like a company, uh, they it's almost uh they kind of it allows them takes the handcuffs off a little bit because then you see them smoking cigars still, but then they're like smoking other brands that they weren't associated with anymore. So it's like they finally get to, they finally get to smoke what they like or something or or something that uh that's uh, um. Yeah, not necessarily in that 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 day in day out repertoire and everything like that. Of course, when you were a cigar snob, you, you didn't have any necessarily brand loyalty, so it was you you got to smoke a lot of different stuff just like I do, which is nice. Yeah, and and to be clear, uh, you know, I I left cigar snob to pursue my own thing at a time the world was turned upside down. The reason I'm saying I smoked those cigars so heavily because they were sponsors was not as an expression of some sort of loyalty, although I do love those two companies. Uh, it was more because I was broke. Yeah, <laughs> so, cigar, so I was, cigar strapped. <laughs> yeah, so I was smoking the cigars I got from our sponsors, which you know it was it was a convenient, it was a convenient thing. Uh, I left Cigar Snob with uh, a stash of. Uh, not all of this was you know from uh, Cigar Snob things, but I I probably had a little stockpile of I don't know a thousand ish cigars, maybe a little less than that. Mm. Uh, which you know is I'm I'm sure there are lots of people out there that have way bigger stashes. I've just never, you know, hoarded cigars or treated cigars as a, you know, thing I was collecting. So I didn't have that mindset of like being more judicious with how I smoked them and who I gave them to. Uh, really, that that stash had built as a result of I typically got my fix at the office, and so whenever I came across cigars, I would sort of stow them away. Uh, I smoked the last of them. Um, this past July, and it was uh the 10th anniversary of my picking it up at my first IPCPR. Uh, it was a La Gloria Cubana trunk show. Oh, wow, uh, uh, with that, like, yeah, with that, like, homogenized tobacco band. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was the last of the stash, uh, that oh, I wow. smoked, uh, la- just last year, and so my, my whole cigar snub. Uh, squirreled away cigar set is is gone. Last from the past, man. With the yeah. the trunk show, jeez, man, that's been <laughs> that's crazy. Um, well, yeah, because before we kind of get more into it a little bit here, um, Nick, just uh, just kind of going back a little bit, anyways, and then kind of catching up with you in general. I was thinking about this today. Um, what's it do you have a favorite snack food that's not like a name brand because like a lot of people get asked this question they're like oh like m&ms or doritos or or something like that that's kind of like name brand but is there like a type of snack that's not like you're like brand loyal to and i'll give you so i'll give you an example like wasabi peas or just like honey roasted peanuts or something like that that's just not like you know not branded or something like that yeah 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 so just like uh a type of snack not a specific a brand yeah a type of snack not a specific yeah. brand well i think that this is i think this is a brand name but i'm using it generically here uh spreading a little butter on a saltine is an underappreciated really uh, yeah okay yeah. wow um i i don't know maybe that's maybe that's really boring or weird or something but no uh, it's also incredibly keep... unique i just didn't expect that to be coming that's interesting okay cuban crackers 
same a little butter on a cuban cracker is is a great time but saltines are more accessible all over the place so i think that's maybe the more relatable answer there mm-hmm. um uh yeah i i could i could think of other answers but maybe just because i've had that most recently uh that I, would be that would be my I used to do this all the time when I was a kid because I like we could like we were broke so like yeah saltines were all the rage man but I couldn't like you know when you know my parents couldn't buy tortilla chips all the time so like that's how I made nachos was okay. saltine crackers I don't think I've ever seen saltine crackers used in place of nachos so yeah you like do so, the cheese and beans and stuff yeah or yeah just mostly cheese and like you know really you know you know and you know here's the name brand paste salsa or whatever that was just like really available in my in my parents fridge you know growing up i mean dude it, it that doesn't sound terrible it it's sounds not. like you could, you could do yeah. a lot worse yeah no it was it was freaking delicious man i mean yeah i mean for a kid you know for a hungry teenager man i mean it was it was pretty it was pretty baller so yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> but, butter and a salty i didn't i didn't see that coming okay fantastic uh so do you don't you don't because i don't really have a sweet tooth do you not have a sweet tooth I'll enjoy sweets, but uh, I wouldn't describe myself as having a sweet tooth. Um, if if I had to name a sweet thing, um, a, like a really good chocolate chip cookie, is is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but even that, I like them with like a really dark chocolate on the bitter side, maybe salted a little. Uh, so yeah, I'm not the sort of person who will go out of his way for a donut. Or ice cream. I can't remember the last time I had something really sweet like that. I think we talked about this when we were in the D- the DR together, actually. Because I think they yeah. they ha- I think they had like they had something like really sweet, and like you both you and I were just like, cool, thanks, but no thanks. Like we'll have a cup of coffee or something like that. So yeah, like I know dulce, like dulce de leche is a thing. A lot of people go bananas over, and if I never saw dulce de leche again, I'd be fine. Yeah. You know, there's worse things. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. Awesome. Well. Um. Let's get on to tonight's major point, uh, which is always brought to you by the people. Yes, cigar people, the people who know everything about a lifetime service. Uh, Protocol Cigars is more than just pool parties and good times. Well. Maybe it is. But behind them, fun is a motivation for service, a motivation for giving back. From the original Protocol Blue to the latest release of the Lawman series, Phoebe Cousins Protocol has always been about honor, passion, and yes, the people. It's what their life's work have been and always will be about. Power of the P Protocol Cigars. So, Nick, I wanted to I wanted to kind of go back here a little bit because it has been so long since you've been here um, on the show and everything. Just kind of do a little reintroduction. You kind of did a little bit at the top of the show. You know, you were, you know, Worked formerly with Cigar Snob Magazine for a number of years. How many? How long were you there? For quite a while, it felt like. Yeah, I was there from almost exactly ten years. I was there from twenty thirteen to. I'm sorry, not ten years. Uh, seven from twenty thirteen to twenty twenty. Uh, and I I started in, I believe it was March of thirteen, and uh, left. Well, it might have been March of twenty twenty. I know I like put in my notice in in February, but I, I might have been there through the beginning of March. So about exactly seven years. Okay, um, we're gonna go back to a story from from two thousand and twelve that you were working on that I, I saw you post about a, a while ago. Uh, well, not a while ago, too, in recent memory, some memory. But like, again, let's kind of start from the beginning. Like, when what was your like your first experience with the cigar? Like, where? Would you have any relatives? We um, 
you know, I'll fill the the audience back in with this. I mean, you're you're of Cuban descent, obviously. I know that, but like, what oh, yeah. uh, what uh, what kind of led to the to coming into the industry in the first place? No, uh, well, uh, I mean, the industry would have been a little later. Uh, my first experience with cigars was right around my 18th birthday. I got as a gift from a good friend of mine. Um, a it was a La Aurora Preferidos. Uh, the the ruby edition in that oh nice uh in that like perfecto yeah, the double perfecto thing. yeah yeah um so that was my first cigar it was the stereotypical you know a lot of coughing and uh and a lot of coughs and regret uh but you know kind of stuck with it and uh, I think that was 18th birthday it might have been maybe it was a year before I forget I think it was 18 and so yeah I, I uh, smoked from then on um uh i i guess it might surprise some people yeah i grew up cuban cuban in miami but cigars were not really like a part of family gatherings for me i do have some uncles and and relatives who smoke cigars but it wasn't really a thing uh in situations where i was around my family um i went to the university of missouri and during that time i probably you know uh got more frequent with my cigar smoking in part because there's not a whole lot to do in Columbia, Missouri, but also uh, because, you know, you leave wherever you're from and you want to connect to where you're from. In the town of Columbia, Missouri, you couldn't find anything right. better to do there, Nick, other than smoke cigars with your friends. Right. And, and sounds weird. I mean, yeah. And I also wasn't the sort of person who, you know, uh, was into the, the things people relish about, a college town experience, right? So I wasn't in a frat. I wasn't spending a lot of time in, you know, that kind of party scene. Um, and I also got like very heavily involved in my college years with Cuba related activism. Um, so anyway, during my college, my time in college, uh, I, I smoked a lot of cigars. Um, I would smoke, you know, over there. I'd smoke when I came back and saw friends here. Um, uh, and then after college, I moved to Madison, Wisconsin for a few years. And it was then that I was introduced by a mutual friend to Eric Calvino at Cigar Snob. Uh, I was a journalism major. I was looking for opportunities to, to do some, you know, freelance writing, especially in those months where it was like too cold to do anything else in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I started freelancing for Cigar Snob while I was living in Wisconsin. And then when the time came to move back to Miami, uh, I got in touch with Eric, let him know that I'd be coming this way, you know, and asked him to let me know if he knew of anybody who was hiring. And it turned out that he was looking for somebody to take on a lot of the editorial side of Cigar Snob's work. So I got into the industry with Cigar Snob. That was really my first exposure to the cigar business uh, outside of just being a, a casual smoker. Okay, what like what were some of your go tos back then? Like cigars that you would like for, like frequent, like before you um, started getting really introduced to a lot of a lot of brands and a lot of different cigars and stuff. Yeah, so I've um, I've always been big on Padron. Uh, still a you know I love a lot of cigars, but the, the way that I answer like what are your go tos or what are your favorites that my my true but also uh, diplomatic answer to that is I won't pick a favorite, but if you told me you can only live in one corner of the humidor for the next six months, 
it's Padron. Uh, and that's that's been the case for a long time. Uh, but I smoked a lot of Hemingways uh, since high school, in part because that same friend who gave me that first cigar as a gift, uh, his dad was a big Hemingway, Hemingway guy, and we'd raid his humidor when I was over at his house a lot. Uh, so sm- smoked a lot of Hemingways uh, in high school and whenever I was back home from college. Um, and then when I was living in Wisconsin, the only place that I had within walking distance, because I didn't uh, have a car while I was living there, because I lived like in a central enough area that I did most things on foot. Um, I would, uh, I, I think I remember smoking a lot of Rocky Patel Edge at the time, just because like that was, that was like the thing in that little cabinet humidor at the cigar bar. I think it was called Maduro, the bar, not the not the cigar. I think the bar was called. I don't think it's still there. Uh, it was a cool little spot, but I didn't have a huge selection. Uh, I liked, you know, I enjoyed them. Not knocking anything, but it's it's not what I would have chosen if I, you know, was in a place with a bigger selection uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. I, uh, but yeah, that's the long answer. The short answer is I've always been a Padron guy with lots of other stuff peppered in there. Um, so what kind of got you into like the, um, obviously again, like previously established you're, you're of Cuban descent, like what was it about, uh, the Cuban activism? Cause you're, I mean, this is something you still keep up with today. I mean, that's, this started back in college, like you said, but this has kind of been a lifelong, uh, passion yeah. of yours. Um, is, I mean, is it, is it much more personal and do you still have family there? And it's it's incredibly personal, or is it just is it just going back to the fact that it's you know family roots? Yeah, I, I don't really have at least not any family that I'm close enough to be aware of in Cuba. I'm sure I've got like distant relatives or something there. Um, but uh, and and I will say I was much more heavily involved in that stuff uh, in that kind of activism uh, when I was in college and in the in the years immediately following. Um, but no, I mean, what got me involved in it was uh, partly just feeling that family connection to Cuba. Um, my my mother's parents were born in Cuba. My dad was born in Cuba. Um, and it just, uh, it, it, it scratched a few itches, right? So there's the personal cultural connection to the thing, but also uh, scratched a bit of a political itch too. You know, I've always had... A sort of libertarian streak in me and so having a family tie to an island uh that had been ravaged by just generations of dictatorship uh that was just that was the the place to channel some of that energy that felt the the most natural and the most call it fulfilling um it was also when I was in college, it was in a big part of it was probably that it was a way to sort of connect to that part of my roots that, um, you know, that I had, I don't want to say left behind, but that I had distance from since they were my, my experience of it was in Miami and I was now in Columbia, Missouri, uh, you know, being in a place where there was so much less awareness of this thing that I had grown up hyper aware of all the time. My dad was also, and, and still is, 
sort of engaged in those issues and with organizations that do work in that uh, on that in that space. So I would do like you know satisfy community service requirements at school, volunteering with organizations that did uh, you know human rights advocacy stuff and and things to support political prisoners in Cuba and that sort of thing. So it had always been a part of my life in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and when I went off to college, I sort of dove all the way in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's interesting. I didn't know that your dad was involved with it too. Is it something that, uh, I mean, is it something that he's, I mean, how, I mean, the, the years of, there's certainly been a lot of progress over certain years. And then the, there kind of was a roller coaster the last couple of years, um, you know, from 2016 until, until today. Um, but I mean, there's still just a lot of, of really great, um, uh, of really great differences, obviously, between our two governments. But I mean, obviously, that's, I mean, I, I don't want to read too much into Nick, but I just, I, I've followed you for a long enough time. I, I, your, your interest in the, your, your interest in, 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 in the country of Cuba has nothing to do with uh, our, our, our geopolitical relationship. It has everything to do with the, um, the regime that's in place and the, the the miscarriage of justice that's transpired over decades and generations. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, no. I, I I when I think of that issue, I don't really tend to think of the Cuban government's relation to the U.S. relationship to the U.S. government outside of the context of like any discussion about uh, how policy might affect change but the the problem uh in my view has very little to do with anything outside of of cuba you know if uh, the 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 cuban government would be no less a dictatorship if uh if trade were changed or opened or closed all the way or uh whatever it might be i would say my views on what u.s policy ought to be have changed somewhat over, I mean, they've been the same for a while now, I think, but, you know, over the period of time that we're discussing where, you know, uh, sometime like immediately after high school and now, uh, I would say that they've changed somewhat, but, uh, but those are not like core to my understanding of the issue or my interest in Cuba, you know, uh, like my, the, the, whatever activism I've been doing has really had very little to do with uh, advocating for changes in one direction or the other on U.S. policy toward Cuba, mm -hmm. if that makes it unclear. It's it's really more about, uh, uh, you know, advocating for freedom and against uh, the, the repression of the of the Cuban dictatorship. I mean, if for anyone that's under living under a rock and, and thinks that or thinks <laughs> that things have changed, you know, uh, with the with the death of Castro and the regime there, it's. Uh, you know, um, that's just simply not the case. And I, and I, I thought something that you, where you could kind of bring some attention to it, Nick, and you, 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 you posted it a couple of weeks ago and everything was a story that probably most people, including myself, if I hadn't followed, you probably would have missed. Um, and apparently uh, this was a, a, and, 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 and my sincerest condolences, uh, Nick, cause I'm, this is a man that you knew, um, and, uh, uh Harold, uh, Sapero. Right um died about three weeks ago um hmm. and sorry he, no he, 
He 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 died uh, much longer ago, but uh, I, I forget. Oh, what the died in two thousand and twelve. Correct. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. But you actually met him before this. So this this goes back to how, like your advocacy has gone yeah. back, you know, for quite a while and everything. Uh, today, uh, the three weeks ago would have been his forty fourth birthday. So right. obviously, yeah. this is still a story that is near and dear to your heart, of course. But share a little bit about Harold's life. I, I thought this would I'd give you the opportunity to kind of spotlight this, since um and 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 kind of give context. Uh, to the oppression that still exists. Um, on, yeah, sure. On, on a topic that you're still very obviously involved with and very passionate about. So, sure. Yeah, and uh, uh, feel free to. Uh, you know, I'm trying to be measured with how much I talk, not because I don't want to touch on this or that, but uh, I'm sure that being around cigars, you've experienced some of this. Like if you, like if you give a Cuban enough runway to talk about Cuba, they won't shut the fuck up. So, <laughs> well, feel free to like. I don't know. Wave your arms. Give well, me a signal, I'll, like Nick. Relax. I mean, I'll, I'll guide the conversation with this. What was it like? What was it like meeting? Um, you know, you, you, you met Harold before his death in two thousand and twelve. What were so you? This was actually you. You actually had the opportunity to go to Cuba. What were you doing there? Was it a part of this activism? Was it a part of journalism? Um, because yeah, there were okay. only so many passes that were given out back then. Yeah. So okay. So um, I'll give a little bit of uh, the setup so people kind of get what we're talking about here so i graduated from high school in 2005 so i was at the university of missouri from 05 to 09 uh in that time i founded a uh, there was a network of student organizations a lot of them shared the same name just because they kind of all latched onto the same catchy acronym it was called causa c-a-u-s-a and the full name was really just an excuse to get to the acronym it was the cuban american undergraduate student association but the acronym was spanish for cause so I started a, uh, a causa organization at the University of Missouri, and then that organization lived under the banner of a national volunteer group that was all uh, university students and young professionals called Raices de Esperanza, which was uh, uh, Spanish for Roots of Hope. So uh, through having started this causa group at the University of Missouri, and attending a Roots of Hope conference, uh, I end up in uh, leadership or and on the board of Roots of Hope. And uh, in the course of that, end up making all sorts of connections and getting real deep into the the Cuban uh, uh, human rights cause and activism and and all of the rest of this. So uh, between two thousand eight and two thousand nine. I was in Cuba four times, if you count the fourth time when they turned me around at the airport in Havana and told me to get out of there uh, and not come back. So, wow. so what, what I so was they doing, didn't even let you into this out of the airport. Like they just correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you that story because it's an interesting story that I think uh, still is illustrative of uh, how some things are today. Um, so I, uh, I went, I went four times between 08, 08 and 09, um, and the second time that I went, so every time I went, at the time, it's still the case that to go to Cuba, your, your travel and the purposes of your travel has to fit within a certain set number of travel purposes, right? And that's any number of things. This is like, as far as I can tell, rarely enforced anymore, but strictly speaking, it's supposed to be like, these people-to-people trips, which is how a lot of people who you hear about or used to hear about going through travel agencies would get to Cuba or academic research or missionary work or, you know, uh, there's a bunch of categories. One of the categories back then, you needed a 
license to travel specific to that trip and that category of travel. Uh, or you could be traveling under some other organization's license. So for instance, at one time I had a license to, because I had found, after I graduated from college, I founded a nonprofit that never really got off the ground, but before it just fizzled, I had obtain, obtained a license from the treasury department to send X number of people to Cuba over the course of 12 months uh, to do work related to this thing. So anyway, I, I traveled to Cuba under other organizations' licenses, and those licenses were for travel to Cuba for purposes of democracy promotion. So this is the one, if you go to see family or you're there on a missionary trip, you would generally like arrive. And if you had to show documentation of your uh, permission from the U.S. government to travel to Cuba, you would show this and it would not be an issue on the Cuban side that you were there to do missionary work and that that had been on paper. The democracy promotion license or, or travel purpose was the one thing that you wouldn't show up in Havana and be like, yeah, here it is. Here's, <laughs> this is what I'm here for, uh, Castro government. Uh, so when I went, I would have permission from the U.S. government, but I would go through third countries and bribe passport stamp guys in Mexico and that sort of thing to every step of the way in case I was being watched, make it look to the Cubans as though I were an American breaking embargo law. Uh, so, uh, can, do we, can, can we curse on this show or? Yeah, no? absolutely. Okay. So the, the, the it sounds like a clusterfuck. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the true story, the true thing, but also the sort of joke that I tell about this is that I was there to do all this democracy promotion stuff, but to make it look to the Cubans, like it was something else, I would always travel uh, and pack a lot of bathing suits and condoms to make it look like I was there to tan and fuck. And I was not doing very much of either of those at that <laughs> age. So, uh, so, um, uh, I, I went, uh, three times. The second time that I went to Cuba, um, one of the things I was there to do was to meet with Harold Cepero and one of his very close friends, uh, Roger Rubio, who is now uh, in the U.S. Uh, he, he came to the U.S. not too long, uh, maybe a couple of years, I think, after our meeting in Cuba. Um, the two of them had been uh, signatories of something called the Varela Project. So this was um, a signature collection initiative that was organized by Oswaldo Paya, who was the founder of something called the Christian Liberation Movement. The idea at the time was the Cuban Constitution had a provision in it that I'm sure they did not anticipate anybody actually making use of that said uh, X number of signatures, I'm blanking now what the number was, but if, if you have X number of signatures, uh, a citizen uh, initiative can put uh, a, a bill or a legislation up for a vote in the National Assembly. So the Borrella Project premise was we are going to use the Constitution against the government that created it and gather enough signatures to force the National Assembly to vote on democratic reforms in Cuba. Okay. The story is that Oswaldo Beat takes these signatures over and over there, turned away, go fuck yourself, we're not going to vote on this, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. And what ends up happening is that all these very brave people who put their names to this thing end up in some stuff. Um, one of the people who, two of the people who signed that were Roger or Rohit Rubio and Harold Cepero. Harold uh, then later becomes the leader of the youth 
wing of the Christian liberation movement. So he's sort of like the youth, uh, 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 you know, protege or right hand man of Oswaldo Paya. Uh, so fast forward. So I, I meet him. Um, and no, just to we, be clear, like this organization, like, I mean, like just cutting through some of the fat here too, yeah. Nick is like this organization. I mean, they're, they are, they are anti Castro regime. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. They're, what, what type of government or what type of leadership were they looking Were they, were they looking to put democracy in place? Were they, what were they looking to do? What was their ultimate goal uh, that they were trying yeah. to accomplish? Yeah. I mean, the, the ultimate goal would have been uh, not necessarily policy specifics in the way that you or I would talk about policy, but more like allowing for more than one party, political party to operate legally. And, you know, just like free, a, sort of free elections. Like, yeah. So like, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Like generic democratic yeah. reforms in the most generic sense of the term. Okay. Um, uh, that, yeah, that's what they were after. Now, Baya had his own, you know, uh, his own personal politics, but that wasn't really at play. Uh, except for maybe in the tactics, right? So the fact that he was a Christian Democrat and the thing was called Christian Liberation Movement informed a lot of their approach of nonviolence and all the rest of this, but it wasn't like they were calling for a Christian government, which I, I can see how maybe that being in the name of the organization would create a little confusion. Um, so anyway, Harold and I meet uh, Rohit, uh, and, or I, I meet Harold and Rohit with a, a couple of other friends that were there with me. Uh, and then... Not too long after, at the time, Rohit had just had a had just had a baby, and he was already uh, in the process of uh, looking to uh, leave Cuba as a political refugee. The thinking being, you know, it's one thing to be an activist of this kind uh, when you don't have a kid; it's another thing to run the risk of leaving your kid fatherless because you're a political prisoner for however many years. Right. So he was like, "I gotta get out of here." Harold stayed behind. He stayed in Cuba. Um. And fast forward to 2012, Harold Sepero and Osvaldo Paella are in a car with two Europeans. One of them was a Spanish uh, a legislator and the other one was a diplomat from I'm blanking now on what country. Um, but the uh, car is run off the road by Cuban state government agents and Harold and Osvaldo both die in that crash. The uh, Spanish legislator, uh, who, if I'm not mistaken, was Angel Carromero. He, um, while he's in Cuba and hospitalized, gives a statement that it was all just an accident. It's not until he's safely back in Spain that he tells the Washington Post in an interview that that story had been coerced out of him and that he'd been drugged uh, during the time that he was given those statements. So oh, wow. effectively he comes out and says, this was not an accident. I, you know, I was in one of the, I forget if he was driving or if he was in the front passenger seat, but like I was in this car, we were run off the road. This was not like a random swerving to miss a pothole and hitting a tree situation. Uh, so Harold and, and Oswaldo both die uh, in that crash. Uh, his, Oswaldo's daughter, just in the interest of kind of like rounding out the thing in case anybody's interested in, what that legacy looks like now. Her name is Rosa Maria Paya, Rosa Maria Paya, uh, Paya being P-A-Y-A. 
and she is uh, the founder of a group called Cuba Decide or uh, Cuba Decides, but Decide uh, without an S at the end is the Spanish translation. And it's a similar idea, rather right? like pushing for democratic reforms in Cuba. And she is uh, probably the the single biggest name as far as like lobbying for those sorts of things before international bodies, whether it's like the U.S. Congress or uh, the European Parliament and and what have you. Uh, but Oswaldo was an internationally recognized activist. It wasn't like some, you know, nobody in Cuba. He had actually won a Sakharov Prize from the European Parliament. He was, uh, uh, I could be wrong. I think maybe at some point he'd been nominated for a Nobel. Like he was, he was about as big a deal as you could be uh, doing this kind of activism in the Cuban underground. Uh, he, he was a, he was a thing. That's crazy. Here you are, this kid from graduating from University of Missouri. You know, thrust right. into a you know, I mean, at least in this, at least in this hemisphere, I mean, it's probably one of the most highly contentious places. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say that it's easily you know, it, it's a little bit like uh, you know, whenever you get into these comparison conversations, it's a little bit like uh, when you're debating MVP or who's the the goats in a sport, right? Like who's who's the goat in basketball? Is it about longevity or where you were at your peak? Like I would argue, and it's not a contest. Cuba is the goat, uh, the goat dictatorship in the hemisphere. Uh, they, uh, you know, if for no other reason, just in terms of like the intensity of the repression and the longevity, right? We're talking about like uh, 1959 until now, and it's been basically the one family, you know. So, uh, so fast forward a little bit that that uh, the story that I was going to tell you about when they turned me away in the airport in Havana. Uh, so I arrive on a Mexicana Airlines flight. So this is a Mexican airline. And um, they uh, everybody on my flight goes through. They get their passports checked and the whole thing and security check. And uh, when I present my passport to the person at the airport in Havana, I'm asked to just like oh, go wait in that corner back there. So I go and I wait. It was all very weird, like not the sort of thing that you would expect this procedure to to look like in the U.S. or in many other countries. Uh, when everybody else from my flight had gone through, they called me back over. They asked me a bunch of questions like, who are you? What do you do? Who are your parents? This and that and the other thing. Uh, what are you in Cuba for? Uh, I told them all the lies that I had prepared for why I was in Cuba. Uh, and... Um, my real purpose of going to Cuba was uh, related to a big concert that was going to be happening in Cuba. Uh, and I was there specifically to coordinate uh, and and in whatever way I could aid independent journalists and in Cuba, independent journalism, like outside of the the structure of the communist government is completely outside of the law. Uh, but I was there to like aid those efforts in whatever I could, in whatever way I could. Uh Long story short, they tell me, uh, we're going to put you back on the plane that brought you and you're going back to Cancun. I asked why. What this lady tells me is, you know, in Spanish, you know, uh, there's nobody here with the clearance to see why. But what I know shows up on my screen is you are not to be allowed to enter any part of the country. So follow me. So they walk me back to the same gate that I had deplaned from. Put me back on this Mexican Airlines plane. Mind you, there's no boarding pass involved. There's no air marshal involved. that haven't been handcuffed. So, like, if you're on a flight from, like, I don't know, Toronto to wherever in the U.S. to go back home, and they you see that they've put somebody on your flight who is uh, 
supposedly too dangerous to allow into the country, you're like, get me the, the hell off of this flight. I have no interest in being on this plane with this person that's too dangerous to allow into your country. I didn't say anything about it to the Mexican airline flight, uh, airline crew. Uh, when I landed in Cancun was when I asked them, like, hey, is there any record of the fact that I was on this plane at all? Like, they just kind of walked me over here and told me, get on. And this flight crew was like, oh, we don't know what you're talking about. So there was no record that I was back in Cancun anywhere. The oh, reason wow. I say this, the reason I say this is relevant to the question of what Cuba's like now, because this was clearly a long time ago. This was 2009. Uh is that this is the cost of doing business in or with Cuba, you know, uh, to have access to that market is to agree to uh, their terms for participation. And it means suspending a lot of norms, whether they are, uh, you know, norms of security or morality or whatever it might be. The like we would be up in arms if we learned that, like, you know, uh, Aer Lingus was just, you know, uh, willy nilly, not keeping track of who they were flying over to New York City or something. Mm. Uh, but I was thrown on this plane to get sent out of Cuba back to Cancun. Mind you, I've seen I have seen with my own eyes a video from uh, and this isn't like to inflate my own sense of, you know, super spied them or something I, especially at the time i didn't see this as being such a <laughs> huge deal uh it was really more silly than anything that we were the you know that that i and and well, so it's a little scary like though man i mean that like like again like to your point like was there was there any record of my being on this flight i mean they could have they could have put you anywhere you know and we've seen that with the cuban government sure. i mean they like i mean they could have they could have i mean they could have put yeah. you in they could have put you in prison no, I mean, it, it, and and I knew that full well going into it. Um, case in point, the first time I went to Cuba, the only people who knew I was in Cuba, other than people involved in this organization I was with, uh, it was my dad. Like, we had agreed actually to not tell my mom uh, until I was oh, already wow. in Cuba, until I was already over there just for fear that she might, like, do something to sabotage the trip and keep me from from going and taking these uh, and taking these risks. And then in the time that I was going to Cuba, nobody else knew that I had ever been like my closest friends didn't know my other people in my family didn't know until after I was turned away in 2009. The thinking being like, OK, at this point, for people to know is not going to jeopardize future travel because I've clearly been blacklisted. Um, and I confirmed that I was on that blacklist and wouldn't be able to go to Cuba as recently as 2017. So oh, wow. uh, I haven't bothered to check back in on that but uh i don't have how, any reason to think well how'd you get in the other two times you said this was the second time that you tried to go no i was turned away the fourth time so oh, you, I, that that is the fourth I, time okay yeah i i met harold the second time got you got you okay yeah yeah wow. i was just kind of fast forward yeah so so this is why i haven't been i haven't been back i mean i i knew i always knew when i was going that it was just a matter of time before like you know, whether it was by pissing them off or just making them tired of following me around or whatever. But, um, but yeah, like I'm sure that they knew a lot of what I was up to and, and there was always some base level risk. Uh, if, if people are not familiar, I would say like, if you want to kind of get familiar with what that risk can look like for a U.S. citizen, if you're, uh, I would say look up the case of Alan Gross. Uh, I remember and, you posting about this. Yeah. So Alan this. Gross. Alan Gross is sort of like a worst case scenario short of death 
uh, he was over there for many years, uh, had gone to deliver uh, satellite phones to Jewish communities. The Cuban government, for the satellite phones to begin with are, are not legal over there because you're facilitating communication outside of government infrastructure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he was in jail. He like lost, he, he looked like he had been in, he had been a political prisoner for all of those years. Um, and, uh, you know, I was aware of, of that case and, and, you know, it could, it could have gone south. The, the sort of thing that you're more willing to, the sort of risk you're more willing to take when you're in your early twenties and, and a little dumb. It's crazy. It's crazy, Nick. Well, um, I mean, hopefully, hopefully sooner. And I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll note in case anybody is interested in digging a little deeper, just in my words, uh, I published Cigar Snob in 2015. We ran a story called Midnight in Havana. So if you want to get a little bit into some of that stuff, you can just run a Google search for Cigar Snob Midnight in Havana, and that should lead you to uh, a story from back in 2015 that I wrote for the magazine. That's great. Um, I'll be sure to get that uh, that link into the show notes, everybody. So that'll be uh, that'll be good. That'll be provided for everybody. I I think that the uh, the interesting thing about all of this too, Nick, is just that, um, like you said, it's 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 very much it's still very much a very very popular topic of discussion. Um, but it's it's usually revolved around those two things. And in the grand scheme of things, those things don't really matter. You know, the the U.S. the U.S. Cuban you know trade relationship has no bearing on the the injustices that you're talking about. You know, you you just talked about a few, obviously. And then the other is cigars, right? Right. They want their Cuban rum. They want their Cuban cigars, and that's you know. Um, I tell people all the time, by the way. Um, you know, being at a casino has put me in more situations than I'd ever been in to talk about that subject as it relates to cigars and mind you you know i don't know what other people's approaches are uh i'm very fortunate to be involved back in the cigar business with people who uh who not only knew what they were signing up for but are on the same page as me so you know you've been in cigar bars and cigar lounges and you get the question all the time from people especially who are not quite as familiar maybe out of towners yeah do you have Cubans? Do you Why have don't Cubans? you have Cubans? Yeah. My answer every time is is a, a dual answer. I tell them we don't have Cubans for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's just not possible legally. And number two, we wouldn't if we could because fuck them. That's why. You know, uh, we didn't flee all these firing squads. We're not, you know, on the streets marching in solidarity with people who are getting run off the road and killed just to send them money for some cigars, you know, regardless of how they, what the quality control issues are or whatever there is, uh, pinned, the obnoxious tweet pinned to the top of my Twitter account is uh, something to the effect of, uh, there is no such thing as the cigar good enough to justify transacting with a brutal dictatorship that feeds on forced labor. If, you know, if Kim Jong-un was making the world's best rum, it wouldn't be in our back bar. And it doesn't matter how good a Cuban cigar is. It's just not worth transacting with a dictatorship that owns that monopoly. Do you, Nick, you've been so involved with this for such a long time. I mean, 
I mean, do you think do you think there's any hope for the some of the drastic changes to take place um in the next decade, two decades ever? I mean, yeah, I mean the long the longer it goes, the harder is it the harder it is to imagine it being any different, right? Um I I do think that at some point or another it changes in the same way that I'm sure people in the Soviet Union never thought that the you know that things would change there in the same way that I'm sure lots of people never thought the iron curtain would fall um what that looks like I have no idea uh you know I, I don't want to you know pretend that I have some kind of a crystal ball or or whatever um but uh but yeah I I do think I don't think that it stays this way forever. Nothing is forever. You just hope that you find some way to accelerate change, whether that's uh, some kind of like uh, gradual change or, or whatever. And this is also part of why I don't think that the question of U.S. policy is particularly relevant, because, of course, there are people who want to see uh, trade liberalized because... Um, they just don't think that there's anything to oppose. But there are plenty of people who, on both sides of the trade question, who earnestly believe that this or that approach would be more conducive to, you know, accelerating some kind of a democratic change. So, uh, so that's part of why. Sorry, I've got uh, some some Abyssino guests who are uh, saying goodbye to my dog Petey, who's the unpaid bouncer at the bar. No, it's all good. <laughs> Are you on a podcast? Bye, PD. Uh, yeah, I'm being interviewed now for a podcast. Yeah, by PD. PD is way more popular here than I am. Nice. 100%. Um, yeah, so that, that's that's a big part of why I don't think that's a particularly relevant question. Um, you know, uh, uh, it, it's an interesting question, but it's not relevant to the question of, like, what is the problem in Cuba? The problem in Cuba isn't these trade policies. Uh, there are lots of people who care just as deeply as I do who don't have the same position on Cuban cigars. You know, uh, I don't agree with them uh, on that narrow question, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that anybody who's smoking a Cuban doesn't give a shit about Cuban people. But that's my position is, you know, uh, there's no sense, you know, especially a government a government monopoly like that. My approach to going to Cuba was always because then people will point to what they see as maybe an inconsistency there. When I went to Cuba, I only went because I saw opportunities to go in ways where I felt like I was taking more from the dictatorship than I was leaving behind. Um, and, you know, and, and even now I try to squeeze more juice out of those trips, like, for example, by telling these stories about Harold and Oswaldo and Rohit and any number of other people who, you know, who I interacted with and, and who are the, the real sort of you know, heroes of, of that whole situation. You said the last time you checked was 2017. Do you think it's still you still you still think you'd be on the blacklist today? I don't see any reason to see to to think that that wouldn't be the case. So the, the way that I confirmed it in 2017 was um, at the time I was working for Cigar Snub, I was offered a job editing a magazine that I don't think is still around called Cuba Trade, uh, and it was about trade with Cuba. So I was offered this position, and I had made it clear to these guys like, listen. I think this could be cool for me to be the one guy, the managing editor at Cuba Trade, who's not on board with trade with Cuba. It could be interesting, but I'm I'm putting these cards on the table. I'm not trying to like surprise you once I get my first paycheck, you know. Um, 
And I also told them, I'm not interested in this job unless I'm able to go to Cuba. So here's what we ought to do. I'm about to go on this long trip. But when I get back, give me a freelance assignment, pay for my travel to Cuba and eat the cost if I'm not able to get in. Uh, but then we'll know whether I can go to Cuba. Uh, so I asked them to do that and to not run it by the Cubans. Sure enough, but when I while I was on my trip, I got an email from them saying that uh, they had run my name by their contacts in Cuba and that they had been told that, no, this guy's not going to be able to get into Cuba. And they moved on and, and oh. hired somebody else. So, oh, gosh. Uh, which is, I mean, it would have just been a matter of time. If I had been able to get into Cuba one time, who's to say that then I wouldn't have been back on a blacklist after whatever silly uh, counter-revolutionary things I was <laughs> I was up to because I wouldn't have just gone and like covered a I don't know sugar trade show or some shit I would have gone and gotten myself into some kind of trouble and it would have been a whole issue so so 2020 comes around you know th- and thanks for sharing all of that Nick I-, I thought that was really interesting that post about Harold and then and, and I knew there would be some good backstory in there too um, but fast forward to 2020 you decide to leave cigars yeah, I- I'm I'm sorry if I may just and I don't know whether I should be doing this because I know that it can be disruptive, but I see somebody commenting, no one real cigar smoker in the world has not smoked a Cuban cigar. It's part of the evolution of a cigar smoker. First of all, I don't know that I'd say that's true, because why should we isolate Cuba? Like there are plenty of real cigar smokers in the world who haven't smoked all kinds of shit. That's fine. But I said you shouldn't transact with them. If you come across somebody who's stealing them from the factory, we're having a different conversation. I'm all for stealing from the dictatorship. If, you're gonna buy your, <laughs> if you want to buy your cigars on the black market from some dude you trust who's getting legit Cuban cigars stolen from the factory, keep it in the black market. Uh, again, fuck them. Fuck them doesn't mean never smoke them. Fuck them just means confirm that it's not helping. Nice. Um, <laughs> so fast forward to 2020. Uh and uh, you decide to leave the cigar industry, uh, leave your after a really strong tenure in Cigar Snob Magazine, um, and pursue these other opportunities. Uh, you had the opportunity to to, to help co-found your own magazine, with Dade Dade Magazine, correct? Um, yep. And and that's still uh, that's still going strong. Um, and then also, um, I know it's hosted um, by someone else. But tell us a little bit about or about the Pancon podcast that that you're uh, that you're so closely associated with too. Yeah, so I had started a, a website, uh, DadeMag.com, and the idea had been and, and remains for it to be a pretty broad web magazine. Uh, that I had a slightly different vision for at the beginning. Uh, I, I overestimated my capacity to myself produce a whole variety of different content. Uh, And so over time, the thing evolved a bit. And then in 2019, I started a podcast called Pancon Podcast. First word P-A-N, second word C-O-N, and then podcast, which is Spanish for podcast sandwich. Uh, Pancon for all of you white people out there. Right, Pancon. Not not pumpkin, not panko. Pancon Podcast. and the the and, and that sort of became the cornerstone of the website. Uh, the host is uh, my good friend, which actually we, we barely knew each other when we started it, but we became very close in the course of uh, making Pancom podcast. 
uh, is Mike Beltran, who is the chef owner of Ariette, uh, Ariette Hospitality Group, A-R-I-E-T-E. The flagship restaurant by the same name, Ariette, has a Michelin star, uh, and they've got 10 bars and restaurants in the company, all of them here in the Miami area. Um, and so Pancom Podcast became the cornerstone because my thinking had always been I didn't want the broader project of DaveMag.com to just be like my personal blog. You know, I wanted there to be a lot of voices. And this was the opportunity I came across to uh, make someone else's voice the the, the center of, uh, of one of the projects on this website. And um, we are now closing in on 150 episodes. We've had some spirit, some, uh, you know, periods of, of more and less uh, regular production, but we shoot for publishing at least a few times a month. Um, and the, the guest list, you know, I think we're punching way above our weight as far as the guest list goes, you know, most of it has been in the food and beverage space. So we've had, of course, a lot of people in the Miami area, like uh, Matt Kusher, who owns um, Kush Hospitality Group, uh, Jose Mending, Norman Van Aken. Uh, that was a great interview. Uh, Michael, Michael Norman Sh- yeah, Norman Van Aken is great. Uh, Norman Van Aken, for those who don't know, is um, you know just a legendary South Florida chef, uh, somebody who sort of like defined how people saw this area and its food. Uh, very early on, you know, as regional cuisines were starting to develop around the country. So like at the time that people were starting to wrap their heads around like what Southwestern American food might be and what the what California cuisine was, he was the guy who like in the late 80s, early 90s was introducing people outside of the tropics to a mango, you know. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. and, and all the, and and all Cuban, the things food, Cuban food is not spicy. It's not uh, all sure, Latin, yeah. all Latin cuisine is not created the same. It's not created equal. So exactly. And, and uh, I know that I know that nowadays some people get up in arms about this stuff. But he was not himself Cuban. He was a dude from small town Illinois uh, who oh that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, who made his way down and he actually God, I wish I could remember the name of the restaurant. Not that I ever would have gone. I'm too young to have been there while he was there, but he would play at what I believe was a barbecue spot in Key West at about the time that a then not very well-known Jimmy Buffett was working that room. Uh, oh, wow. So, um, so yeah, he's like, a, he's a legend of, of South Florida cuisine, uh, super tight, super tight with the Emerald Lagasse's and, and uh, the, you know, all, all these sort of legendary chefs. Um, mm-hmm. So, so anyway, he was on the podcast. He was he's Mike's, uh, you know, food, uh, one of Mike's food mentors. Uh, but we've also had other people like uh, Ed Reed has been on the podcast, who, of mm-hmm. course, a lot of uh, not just football fans, but in the last several years, a lot of cigar uh, fans have been, uh, uh, you know, becoming more well acquainted with. And that's one of my favorite dudes that that we've had on just as a as a guy. Uh, Ed's the best. Um, we have had uh, Jorge Mas. Who's a founder of uh, uh, not the founder? He was he's a was chairman of Mastec, but also owns uh, Inter Miami, the uh, our MLS franchise down here with David Beckham. Uh, we have Rosa Maria Paya, who's the activist I mentioned earlier, the daughter of Oswaldo Paya. Uh, we are scheduled. oh you had her on the you had her on the podcast. Yeah. Okay, had, I need her, to catch that episode. Her. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to send you a link. Remind me if I don't get it to you. 
um, we're going to record, we're scheduled to record this week. You never know if things fall through, but we're scheduled to record with uh, Robesi Ramirez, who uh, won two gold boxing medals for Cuba and then defected and became featherweight champion of the world, a WBO uh, champion. Uh, so, you know, a good variety. I would say like 60 to 70 percent of it is food and beverage industry people, but that's not always where the conversations go. We typically record at like 9 p.m. ish. So it's like the last thing in everybody's day, kind of like this. And everybody's just been through uh, very often, like both sides of the interview have been through grueling kitchen shifts. And so uh, by the time we're done, everybody is just sloppy drunk and it's a very good time. <laughs> uh, sometimes it gets a little heavier, like the episode we just put out with um, Lucy Lopez, who was a big radio personality here in Miami and now has a couple of podcasts herself. Uh, she and Mike talking about their experiences with their respective moms being diagnosed with cancer um, and and all of this leading up to uh, 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 a lot of talk about an event that's coming up. Uh, Mike, this will be the second year that Mike uh, puts on an event called Cars and Croquetas, which is a charity car show to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So all of this is to say, like, a lot of stuff happens on the podcast. It's kind of like wherever our heads are in the moment. Yeah, I I like that. Like it's 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 dedicated to a space. I do I do something similar on the show, right? I mean, mostly it's all about cigars, but it's mostly about the people. But even like then, like I've had guests that we've we've brought on people to talk about movies, you know, talk about baseball. Yeah. So yeah, it's but I I really like I really like the podcast for that because again, it is kind of in that the food and beverage world, like you said. But every so often, you catch somebody like an Ed Reed or something like that, which you've had the opportunity to interview him twice because you were you interviewed him while you were on the Cigar Snob podcast, and then yeah. this this was uh, this was another project that you were a part of too, which is interesting. Do you do you um so it's, it's you produce it correct? I mean, do you ever co or do you ever have the opportunity to co-host it much? Yeah. So depending on who the guest is and what the topic is, I'll sort of you know, uh, insert myself more or less. Uh, I, especially when the, the conversation is about food, I step way back because it's, it, it, even more so when both Mike and the guest are, you know, chef or chefs or restaurateurs or whatever, I have very little to contribute to that conversation. I was more involved in, for instance, the conversation more with like, somebody. Else. Yeah, like, man, yeah. your food's really good. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty tasty. Uh, I've had it a bunch. Um, no, but I, I was more involved in, the, you know, whenever we're talking Cuba or uh, more recently, we did an interview with Sherry Bayer, who is a food industry publicist and uh, just published a book called Chef Wise. And uh, we haven't put that episode out yet, but, you know, I'll insert myself a little more if we get into the topic of food journalism. Uh, and just because that's a little more connected to my wheelhouse and how media functions and what the role of journalists ought to be in talking about or reviewing a product you know i think there's it's not that much of a leap to go from cigars to food when that's what we're talking about mm-hmm. um you know so it, it i it varies how much how involved i am in these conversations so when you kind of took a step back from the industry and and we're focused here like you said and you kind of talked you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier and everything um and, and, and I think something you may have caught, and, and I want to bring the audience up to it just in case you happen. I cannot remember just in case you said it before we went live or not. Did you ever see yourself coming back to the industry in a, in a full time or at least majority time, um, you know, opportunity 
or like once once you had the opportunity to move away and start Data Magazine and 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 the working with this other podcast and and Mike and everything like that, where you were like, I'm I'm done. Like I, I that was something I did. I loved it. Eric's great. Scar Snob Magazine's amazing. But I'm kind of finished, or 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 was like, God, man, I really missed it. I want to come back. Yeah, I mean, there were things about it that I missed. But I wouldn't say that I was seeking to be a part of it. I also had never written it off as like, I'll never be involved again. But maybe to put it in clearer focus, I never got involved with Cigar Snob to begin with because of cigars. I got involved with Cigar Snob because it was a magazine opportunity. Mm. Um, and it just so happened to be cigars. And and that was how I uh, you know became as acquainted with the industry as I, which is why like if you go back into the archives i don't know how much of this stuff is accessible online but especially at the very beginning in 2013 i wasn't writing all that much about the tobacco and the cigars in and of themselves right which is something that i'm i'm grateful to eric and cigar snob for because i think other people might see another warm body in the office and just assign them whatever the thing is that needs to get done. Uh, but he, I think, was very deliberate about making sure that I was getting exposure to the right stuff and the right people and the right experiences so that I could sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, graduate to being sent off, you know, on my own, unsupervised to, uh, you know, to uh, interview or to, for instance, I spent... I don't know how many days with uh, with Aganorsa and on their farms and their factories and all that stuff mm -hmm. to profile to profile Eduardo and their company. Like by then, I'm not going to say that I you know I I'll never call myself an expert because I think as you know, there's too many there's too many of these old farts running around who've done nothing with their lives but learn about tobacco and they're still learning. And if for no other reason than to avoid violence from them, I'm not going to call myself an expert uh, on on the record. Right, uh, but I but I certainly knew more by year seven than I did by year one, and somewhere in between, I you know I Eric was you know watching and trusted me enough to to take on stuff that I that I hadn't before. Um, well, the unique opportunity I, that you had that I was you know candidly was was a little jealous of. Uh, you know, professionally speaking, I wasn't like burning with envy or anything like that, but. It, um, but just because of the unique opportunity you had, because of the perspective you have, you know, you know, we were both down uh, at, in the DR. We were hosted by Davidoff and um, both yourself and Eric, myself and Coop had the opportunity to interview. I mean, a couple of legends in the business and Hanky Kellner um, mm -hmm. and uh, Eladio Diaz. Mm -hmm. um, and we had, you know, to boot for us, I mean, we had the king of translators. We had Klaus Kellner translating for for you and I. And I, um, like the dumbass I am, of course, I, you know, in my defense, I had just met you, but I was like, I was like, oh, who, who did, did, did Klaus translate for you? And you're like, well, Eric and I speak natively. So it wasn't really that big of a deal. And I was like, oh, man. And like, yeah, I felt like a fool a little bit. But no, but then I started thinking about that. I was like, man. What if what a freaking great opportunity that must have been for you? Because, like, um, you know, as great as Klaus was at translating and everything, and and uh, to us to understand it, I mean, the first of all, the comfortability that you had with your interviewee, 
and just like being able to catch a lot of the nuance that like I do when I'm, I mean, obviously I don't conduct interviews in Spanish on the show. I do it in English. Like there's a lot of times where like someone will say something and I'll be like, Hey, wait, wait, what was that? Like, let's, let's kind of, let's kind of follow this train of thought. Like you had that, you had that ability to do. And so that's where I was kind of like, man, I bet that was so much fun. I mean, did you, I mean, I'm sure you had dozens of opportunities like that, you know, over your time with Cigar Snob, but I mean, I kind of wanted to go back to that moment because for me, that was a little, that was a personal moment for me, kind of, you know, happy for you. And, and, and kind of like what, maybe what, what did you learn that maybe that maybe I have missed or something? Yeah. I don't know that I would have learned anything to be honest in that interview, which uh, frankly, I don't remember super vividly. Like maybe there were little details or something that I caught that thinking back, maybe you wouldn't have, but I think it was probably more about all the in-between stuff, you know? So like, uh, and to your point, I was always a little surprised, not that people who didn't speak Spanish would be interested and in get into covering the industry, but that there weren't more native speakers on the media side. Um, for whatever reason that might be, I, I really don't know. Uh, but I think the, where, where being a native speaker helped was in two areas. Number one, developing some of those relationships right because you're able to joke with somebody in their native language just while you're like i don't know yeah shoot the shit yeah i mean just like right just normal conversation rather than like right you know a formalized Um, you know a formalized discussion of some kind you know right but but even also just like if you're walking a factory floor with one of these guys you're able to catch like they're you know exactly what the interaction is between them and like when they you know, uh, 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 interrupt something for quality control purposes. Yeah, talk to a roller or, they, or something like that. Or, yeah. yeah, they give a roller feedback or whatever it might be. Like, so all of those things, I think in an interview context, especially when the person you're interviewing is sort of hyper aware that they're being, if not recorded, that it's on the record. Uh, it probably makes less of a difference there because they're being a little more measured and they're imagining all the words they're saying in quotes and and all the rest of this. Um so I think that's probably where it made more of a difference. Uh, yeah. But then the flip, but then the flip side of that is that you know there are other people who maybe it's not that I wouldn't be able to connect with them, but uh, but that you could connect with, and and in a way uh, that some of these cigar makers couldn't connect with each other. So like I don't know how good Matt Booth's Spanish is, but God knows to talk to Matt Booth in English. Is a pretty adventure. Yeah. Is an adventure. Like, I don't know that AJ Fernandez would have a full appreciation of what a sit down with Matt Booth is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. So, (laughs) and there's so much of that. Like, there's so many characters. Yeah. In in the industry that, like, it's it's an embarrassment of riches of characters. And to miss out on some of the people who speak no English, there's still a lot. There's still a lot going on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I Matt Matt's one of my favorite people to interview. Um, and it drives it drives Coop crazy because I'm able to keep him contained. Is probably the best way that can do it. Uh, why contain him? Why? Why contain I, I, him? I, well, I don't, and that's the thing that like, but he just doesn't like. I guess I guess he just doesn't go as crazy with me as he goes with somebody else. And it's, and it's just because to your point, Nick, and this is what I've told Coop before. It's like I let him go, man. And then I just reel him back for whatever point that I want to make or whatever conversational to- or whatever topic I want to go down the road. But I just let him go because it's it just 
it's it's yeah. he's incredible I, I i love him uh he's he's in the and i consider i have the opportunity to consider him a dear friend and so it's 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 really nice so i mean i bet that was really exciting for you to come back and and, and kind of get, kind of rekindle a lot of those relationships and and maybe even introduce people too across some of these these other networks that you've had um yeah. well, let, let's talk about this so you you had the opportunity um um you had the opportunity to uh, to to come back to the industry with El, El, El Vecino, uh Cigar Lounge. So, kind of walk us through like this and like where where you're at now and how like, how it kind of came to be. Yeah. So, Pancom uh, Podcast, as I mentioned, is uh, is hosted by Mike Beltran, who owns. He's a chef owner of Ariad Hospitality Group. So, chef owner meaning he's got a bunch of other partners who are not on the culinary side. Um, and. Um, when the time came, by the time they decided that they wanted to open a cigar bar, I was, um, you know, they, they had become well acquainted with me um, and and I had become well acquainted with them. And so we had a good sense of each other. And I, I think that it's, you know, it's a group where like we, we trust each other a lot. Uh, and so I think everybody saw a little bit of an opportunity. They saw an opportunity at the risk of speaking for them, but I think they saw an opportunity to bring somebody in as a partner in this concept, uh, El Vecino, who could fill the knowledge gap on the cigar side. Uh, and this is a group that does all of the other stuff involved in a cigar bar at a super high level. Like, I, I've, I I'm, this should not be taken as me like, patting myself on the back i have nothing to do sorry let me you want me to mute myself for these sirens here i'm outside the bar i don't know if this I can't, is a big deal i, I, I can't okay, even hear cool. him so perfect yeah um you know uh, uh, it's not me patting myself on the back here i it's just a fact i think it's a fact that this is the only cigar bar in the country or maybe maybe anywhere uh that is open to the public so it's not members only it's not like a room in a restaurant this is the only one that it is owned by a group that has a Michelin star under the same umbrella, right? So as far as like the hospitality side, whether it's the beverage side, the cocktail program, the food, the service, the design, like this is all at a super, super high level. It's something that I would not be able to accomplish if I were involved, if I were just like setting off on my own, like suppose that I'd found an investor and wanted to open a cigar bar on my own, I would not be able to pull off what these guys have pulled off. So I have the easiest job in the building is just to kind of be a cigar guy and, and put cigars. I like in the humidor. Um, but the dream job uh, for most people, I would say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Smoke cigars. Like, right. But the, uh, the flip side of that is, you know, I would not have become involved at all. Right. Like they saw that opportunity with me to fill that knowledge gap so they could focus on that stuff. I absolutely would not have been involved with anybody else. Like I was not looking to get involved with a cigar bar. But that's the opportunity that this presented, right, was mm -hmm. to was to just be able to focus on that, to consult on that side of things um, and to know with full confidence that no matter what was happening outside the humidor, the best move was to trust them with it. Like I have nothing to contribute on the cocktail menu or the recipes are uh, we we have a restaurant next door. Let me see if. So right now, El Vecino is at my back. All of this that you're looking at down that way, mm -hmm. that's uh, 
Brasserie Laurel, which is um, uh, also part of the group. So we've got Brasserie Laurel supplies uh, a menu of food that uh, that they make available exclusively to guests at El Vecino. Uh, so everything about the experience is stuff that like I'm really able to just sort of focus on the cigar side of it. And um, and to your point, the sort of merging those networks is definitely, you know, the thing uh, that proved, uh, you know, not just fun, but uh, but very valuable because I spent all this time a, a little bit like you, right? Like you, all of this time, you've been developing very personal relationships with these people. Um, and, you know, I've got friends in the business and yeah. now I, and now I was able to go to them and there's a trust that we've built because over the seven years that I was at Cigar Snob, I wasn't buying anything from them and they weren't buying anything from me. I had nothing to do with ad sales at Cigar Snob. I was just the dude who was hanging out, writing stuff and very happy to be forgotten. I wasn't trying to like build clout in the business or whatever. Uh, I just wanted to write cool stuff and see it printed in the magazine uh you know uh, and and it, it helped also uh th there's a lot of overlap with Pancom podcast too because some of the people who have like drew estate and agonorsa um who are sponsors of the podcast and both are in our humidor uh i think saw the work that i did at cigar snob and appreciated the quality of it and you know uh that that has been has been valuable. There's a trust that's built there, um, that uh, that has has gone a long way in in this endeavor. So Interesting. that I mean that that's super cool about just being part of a Michelin star organization. I mean, for me, that kind of nerd out on that shit because I freaking love food. So I love restaurants too. You got to come down here, man. We'll so. do. We'll have a whole. We'll, we'll pig out together. Get Fantastic. food all up in our. Get some Michelin star food all up in our beards. Sounds good. Um, I'm I'm down. That's that's going to happen at some point. The um, what just to kind of go back to this again with you not looking for this opportunity necessarily, it's just landing in your lap. You also, frankly, with no retail experience, and like I I was a part of that for a long time, and I can I can confidently say, I I can confidently say this in two different directions, and this is going to seem like 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 opposite sides of the spectrum. I am fully confident that it, at, at my peak, when I left the retail space, if someone had hired me to 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 run a humidor, I could have done it with excellence. That being said, I know how fucking hard it is, and and there's a lot of things that I would have probably fucked up on. Um, to be completely frank and everything. So I mean, so there had to be some of that. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Nick, but that I mean that had there had to be some kind of intimidation factor with the fact that you didn't have any experience in this area other than just the knowledge and the relationships, which granted is a huge part of this. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because of course there is, there are aspects of that, right? That you got to be uh, prepared for with some amount of experience and all that. But the flip side is this is. In terms of the approach, right? Like I, I think we're, you know, we're proud of of the selection and 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 we know where we want to take it in the future. But this is a cigar, it's a cigar bar first, right? And so that's part of why I took this opportunity. It's part of why, in the same way that like this is a company that 
on the restaurant side does not especially at these like fine dining establishments that they have the first priority is is the product a fit for what we're trying to accomplish here not does the does it in terms of like the pnls right which of course is important but the concept comes first so is this right. cigar a fit for the experience we want people to have here right and that's that's part of what i mean by it was it's it's the easiest job in the building because this is a company miami's food scene is not as doesn't have the deep history that certain other places do like new york or new orleans or austin or chicago you know so this is a company that's used to introducing people to a lot of things for the first time and like letting it letting ariette be where you discover that you actually love foie gras and that kind of stuff gotcha so i was able to like a good example and and i hope i hope that he won't mind that i'm saying this uh but when you know we have a pretty tight selection and all of the everything down to like every size was thought about very deliberately and whether it fit here and we carry all of the herrera esteli lineup only in lonsdale deluxe that's the only size we do. We don't carry it in any other sizes. Um, and it's deliberate because I know that's the size that Willie blends to. And that's the experience we want people to have. And if you wanted a different size, I don't know, maybe at some point in the future we'll carry it. But right now, that's the choice we made. And hmm. if you don't and if you don't want to be taken for that ride, if you like if you insist that you need all the sizes, that's okay. We're not a superstore. We never set out to be a superstore. Um and there's nothing yeah. wrong with the superstore, but this is we have we're we're attempting to curate a very particular experience and set of experiences here. Well, yeah, um, Mike didn't hire you to run Smoke In or as example or a Corona Cigar Company or a Two Guys Shop or Michael's Tobacco or anything like that. He he, like you said, it's very much an, it's part of the experience. Probably right. similar to the equivalent without the the, the the fine dining here in Fort Worth. There's a, a Silver Leaf, which is downtown Fort Worth, prime location. Um, you know, beautiful establishment. It, again, it's it's an experienced place. Like the humidor is pretty decent, yeah, mind you. Um, but it's it's more it's more about the experience, the the cocktail, the everything like that, and it's and they do a great job with it. Um, the exactly. um, but yours is a whole a whole world which is just fantastic yeah and, so it, that, and it's cool like it, it it makes it a lot of fun right because you you're you're able to say like all right so we've got uh this cocktail is there something in the humidor that fits as a pairing for that if somebody you know is really adamant about that or whatever and um you know and and if it's not there then we can go out and and look for something and have it be very pinpointed uh, in those directions and the, the, you know, the selection isn't right now where, uh, you know, we have places that we wanted to go. We're going to be expanding. We're bringing in new, uh, you know, new suppliers and expanding the selection, but it's never with the, I never ask anybody we're opening an account with what's the, your best seller. I don't care. That's, you know, uh, it's not something we concern ourselves with. Interesting. Also, also bear in mind this is a company like they can sell the experience like they didn't get to have 10 bars and restaurants by creating experiences that confuse people and then not selling them so it's a company that understands how to uh softly educate guests i'll give you a good example uh 
probably the brand that has the most facings in our humidor, and it's not a massive selection, is Padrum. Um, we have a lot of people who come in here telling me that they don't smoke Maduros because Maduros are too strong. Right. Because this thing operates the way that it does, we're able to, you know, whenever I'm here, I'll geek out with somebody, give them like a whole crash course situation on the, if they're down for it, you know, on the process of, uh, of growing and harvesting and processing tobacco. And uh, sometimes I'll sit down at a table with somebody and we'll be dissecting cigars together um and uh actually a Havesteli Brazilian Maduro is my favorite cigar in our selection to illustrate to people what Maduro contrib what some Maduros can contribute to a blend. And especially when people are confused about like what do you mean Maduros take on a sort of sweetness? Like what does that yeah what does that mean in real terms? So I'll very often take a Brazilian Maduro uh Lonsdale cut off about an inch of wrapper yeah. and and give it to somebody and let them smoke it as a sort of shaggy foot cigar and tell them like, make sure you're paying attention to how it changes when the wrapper starts burning because we're able to have these personal interactions with people. We have a number of guests who have come in saying like, Oh, I'm a Padron guy. And I only smoke the Padron naturals because the Maduros are, are too strong. And now they are like Maduros are all they smoke. That's their thing. You know, uh, it's not a matter of like, that one is better than the other, but if we want to make nerds out of people, or I want to make nerds out of people here, um, and if the focus is on making nerds out of people, those are the people who feel a connection to the to the product, to that craft, to the experience. If you're just burning tobacco, cigar smoking and burning tobacco are two different things. Mm -hmm. Some people think they're smoking cigars and they're just burning tobacco. But when you That's know about it, when you when the more you know about it, the more you fall in love with it, you know, and that's the experience that I'm sure you've had that I've had. In fact, I remember I remember traveling with uh, Andy Astencio, who is still doing uh, he's the art director at Cigar Snob. And um, the uh, the first time he traveled internationally because he got his uh, his U.S. citizenship um, was uh, on a well, I don't know if it was other than Cuba. The first time he traveled somewhere other than Cuba, I believe was on a trip with me to the DR and he had been editing uh, or doing all of cigar snobs page design and smoking with us and all this stuff for years and years. And it wasn't until he was in the DR seeing a lot of this stuff right in front of him that he said, now I get it. Like you now can't you be it. this, you can't be this close to it and not fall in love with it. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, does that mean you have to be on a farm or in a factory? Not necessarily, but the no. closer you can bring somebody to, what they're actually experiencing, the more likely they are following. Well, that's the unique perspective that you can bring to this experience. Like you said, like it's part of the experience and people go in there to, to have the, to have the Michelin star meal, to have the signature cocktail and to have a cigar. And then along the way, you know, you have these wave of experts that explain where the food is and blah, 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 blah. And why that's special. And here's the cocktail and why that's special. And then you're that guy that can bring those stories like, Hey, yeah. One time I was down, in the Dominican Republic. And I was talking to the guy who created this, the cigar, you know, and, and, and you can bring a little piece of that to the, to the conversation. And it, 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 it changes everything. I think. Um, yeah. I think people just assume, 
that the consumer, for lack of a better word, although I've been like trained that like we we don't call them customers or they're they're guests, right? But uh, the smoker uh, doesn't want to be educated, and I think that's just not true. That's not one, true. Yeah. One of the the best events that we've done here was you've probably been through um, some version of the Aganorsa tasting with the three Fumas, uh, or maybe you've seen it at a, a at a shop or something, maybe pictures. Like the Aganorsa team, they have these three Soruyos or three Fumas of uh, just a single leaf rolled up, and it's three varietals that they, uh, they use heavily in their blends. Um, and we asked them to just supply us with those. Um, and what we did was we built a whole experience around these and the idea was you have the the one fuma a uh sorry you still are you still there you look like you froze yeah no i'm here i'm still here okay cool sorry sorry sorry. (laughs) you're just very still sorry no i'm Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in i'm in i'm in good uh yeah yeah so so what we did was we took a tasting that i might sometimes do and and uh keep it at like 30 minutes to 45 minutes and we made it like a three-hour ordeal where with each fuma I, I would walk, I would take people through this presentation. There was a slideshow and graphics and all kinds of shit uh, about the whole process. And then you're smoking these things. And then uh, one of the sommeliers in the company had uh, sat with me and tasted all of these and found wine pairings for each one. And so you get the Fuma, you're poured a little bit of wine that pairs with it, the next one, and so on and so forth until fine. And each, each Fuma is paired with a snack from the kitchen next door at Brasserie Laurel. And and you get people to have this whole experience where they're connecting with the tobacco in a totally different way. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've taken somebody from burning tobacco to smoking cigars. There you go. You know, I love it. Uh, and and it's, it's just a matter of making that connection. So all of this is, you know, I think we meandered here from the question of, like, how I have gone about stocking the humidor. And the answer is that it's, it's easy because... This company is so great at all these other things that I really am able to just focus on giving people that experience. And it's okay if it's not for everybody. It's okay if like somebody wants a particular size. You know, like I think the only 60 ring gauge thing we have in the humidor right now is the three blends of uh of EPC's inch. You know, because I, you know, we wanted to have something for that person, but I wanted to make sure that if somebody's smoking 60 ring gauge, it's something that was blended with 60 ring gauge in mind. Or with right. 64 ring gauge in mind, with a yes. big ring gauge in mind, yeah. Um, you know, and and if that's you know if you're really into some other thing that we don't have, it's okay. Like you don't have to. We don't have to be everything to everybody. Oh, absolutely. Well, th- I mean, this is exciting stuff, Nick, and I really appreciate you sharing it. So, like for um for everybody out there, anyone visiting Miami, where where can they find Elvis? You know, when uh, what are their you know hours operation? When they can find you there? What uh, just fill us all the details there. Sure. So El Vecino is in downtown Miami. Um, we are at 698 Northeast First Avenue. Um, and that is about two blocks uh, west of the Caseya Center where the Miami Heat play, just to give people, orient people a little bit. Uh, so pretty, pretty centrally located. If you happen to be in Orlando or anywhere south of there that is Along the Brightline train route, you can take Brightline, and we are a couple of blocks 
from the Miami Brightline station in the other direction. So that's like the high speed rail here that um, that people are using, or the Orlando to Miami uh, thing just opened a few months ago, I believe, maybe a few weeks ago. Um, so you can find the the website is elvecinomiami.com, E-L-V-E-C-I-N-O, Miami.com. And it's the same on the socials, El Vecino Miami on Instagram. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, we're open uh, at 4 p.m. every day. Um, this is to give you an idea of, so we had been open earlier in the day before we are in what's called Miami World Center. So Miami World Center is uh, a 20-some-odd acre development in the heart of Miami. Uh, and our cigar bar and the French restaurant next door that's in our group are the only food and beverage concepts open right now in Miami World Center. As this area starts to kind of come to life, uh, like Maple and Ash is opening across the street. They're a steakhouse with locations in Chicago and Scottsdale. Uh, there's going to be a bowling alley. There's all kinds of stuff that's going to be happening in this little corner of the world. Oh, that's uh, cool. So as as it starts to kind of come to life a little more and parking gets figured out and all that stuff, we'll be opening earlier and earlier in the day. Um, and uh, But right now, we're open 4 p.m. every day. We close at midnight on Sundays and Mondays at 1 a.m., Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, Saturday, we close at 2 a.m. And then I would also note... Uh, uh, one thing that's sort of like, we're not this, and then I'll contradict a little bit. We're not a sports bar. We're not like come and watch, you know, cable news. Oh, like this is a very much a cocktail bar vibe. In fact, if you wanted, I could, well, when we're done here, if you want, I can, it's not a huge space. But I can take the laptop in there and give you a little first person fly around or something. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very much a cocktail bar feel. However, uh, Mike and I are both uh, fight fans and so are some of the other partners like Andrew Falsetto. Uh, we're, we're all fight fans. And so we've been doing the UFC pay-per-views. So uh, every so often, if you want to come in and watch people get punched in the face, we turn into a little bit of a sports bar for those purposes. There you go. Uh, nice. So nice. Uh, let me know if you want to do that. I don't want to like. Yeah, let's let's, let's yeah, do it sure. real quick while we uh, before we transition to our fun segments and uh, conclude the evening with our last few questions and stuff. So. Cool. I'll just hold the laptop. In this front is like of this is like only like the second time this has ever happened on our show. Oh yeah, here so, I'm gonna yeah. turn you around. So actually, if you look down there, there's the arena off in the distance. You can barely make it out. Okay. And then here is here's the front of the place. We're gonna walk through here. It's almost closing time, right? It's almost closing time, yeah. So this is the bar. And there's the humidor. And there's the humidor. So, you know, it's not a huge space. We've got room for about 35, 40 people in here. And here is the humidor. And the, I anticipate the humidor setup changing pretty dramatically as we start to bring in other stuff so i'm going to be transitioning a lot of things into trays and um, i have all kinds of wild ideas about what exactly that setup would look like uh that are probably 
unrealistic and overestimating my creativity and carpentry skills. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see what I do with it. Nice. That's exciting stuff, man. That's exciting stuff. Uh, the uh, um, I think that what's really exciting uh, just about these kinds of concepts and stuff is that I really like the fact that the other people are are getting involved in the the industry and then and then they're able to bring in people like like yourself that they can kind of fill that gap and like I said they're just bringing that perspective and those unique opportunities and those those relationships that we talked about which we like I said is is a, is a very important part of it uh, so that's that's uh that's really exciting and that looks beautiful I, I can't wait to visit so that'll be that'll be a lot of fun oh, I would uh, love for that. sure um so yeah go check go check out El Vecino guys. It's in downtown Miami. So next time you're down in Miami, a lot of great cigar stuff to do. So there's a lot of great cigar destinations and everything. Uh, but this is a unique experience and uh, Nick's done a really good job of, uh, of bringing in some really cool stuff and, and, and making it a part of the whole culture there. So this is really good stuff. Fantastic. I would also note the, this isn't me. These aren't my words. A lot of our guests here insist that we are, that Laurel next door on their exclusive menu for El Vecino, that is maybe the best burger in Miami. Just throwing that's it out there. Oh, that's a huge claim. All right. Does it Sounds have like a, does it have egg on it? There's no egg. Okay, no. cool. Well, fantastic. That means we gotta bring Coop there. Because Coop's the, right the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate judge of burgers. So that's fantastic. Okay. Love it. So great, great excuse to go down there. Perfect. I love it. Love it. Uh that'll 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 be happening for sure. So best burger in Miami. Whew. Nice. Um, exciting stuff. Um, what, how would you characterize the menu? You said French, correct? Well, the, the restaurant next door is French. All of our food, uh, all the food that is served at a vecino comes from that kitchen. It's not all French. So to give you an example, so there's the burger, but it's a very classic American burger. There is a burger next door, but they, you know, change things up, uh, for our menu. Uh, there's also, it's it's a pet peeve of mine. The menu has an item that is called short rib pot pie, but there's no pie crust. It's really more of a short rib shepherd's pie, uh, like uh, sort of very cheesy uh, potato, whipped potato with short rib, uh, braised short rib underneath. Uh, but that's delicious. Uh, there's oysters, there's caviar, there's a poutine. Um, so it's just a bunch of stuff that we thought would be delicious and that fit, um, you know, the vibe of the, not just the vibe of the cigar bar, but also like physically, you know, how you're seated and, and all of that stuff. So for instance, the restaurant next door, Laurel has a burger that is a very fork and knife burger. It's, uh, it's, uh, Gruyere cheese and shaved truffles and caramelized onions. And it's sitting in a bowl of an uh, like a peppery au poivre sauce, very Frenchified. That wouldn't make any sense. Okay. Yeah. Sitting like cutting it over a coffee table. So, you know, we needed to clean it up a little and just do a classic you can hold it in your hands situation. Uh, I'll eat I'll eat that other burger at your place. I don't care. But yeah, but <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds fantastic though. But yeah, no, that's exciting. Really cool. Very cool concept, Mick. Well, thank you so much for kind of catching us up on everything and sharing a little bit about Stuff we hadn't got into last time you were here, uh, which was really, really great. Thank you. Um, so we, we've got uh, some fun segments to kind of conclude our evening and everything. So I wanted to go ahead and uh, 
kick it off everything with our presidential trivia segment, which, of course, is brought to you by United Cigars, featuring Lajion Havan, distributors of Jose Dominguez, Bandolero, Garofalo, the firecracker, and the highly acclaimed Atabay Byron, and now Alfonso Lynch from Selected Tobacco. Smoke one today and start living United. Um, I said there were going to be a series of questions, Nick. Uh, this is going to be multiple choice, so this is probably going to be the toughest one for you. But I think I picked I think I picked an alley for you, man. I think I really did to use Ooh. the... Um, you, might, you might be overestimating me here. I, and I, I tailor it to my guests a little bit. So this has to do with something you're very passionate about, which is the, you know, the, you know, the country of Cuba, right? So in 2016, President Barack Obama was the first sitting president to visit Cuba since this sitting president. Okay. So sitting president. Um, so 2016, Barack Obama was the first sitting president to visit Cuba since this sitting president. So okay. was it a Ulysses S. Grant? B. Calvin Coolidge, C. Woodrow Wilson, or D. John F. Kennedy. <laughs> uh, all right, I, Kennedy was not in Cuba. Correct. Uh, Grant, I do not believe went to Cuba. Uh, he did actually Cuba. after his presidency, believe it or not. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, I didn't know that for a fact, but I, I think I, I felt like I would have known it if he'd been there as president. Uh, you said it was Coolidge and who else? Coolidge and Wilson are the only two left on the board. I'm going to guess Wilson. Oh, man. It's Calvin Coolidge, oh. 1928. Damn. Okay. All right. Yeah, 1928 was the last time that a sitting U.S. president had visited the country of Cuba, which is interesting that it be, it's, be, it's, it's, it's kind of dominated geopolitical conversation for more than half a, for half a century. And the first, pre- you know, the last president was in the the first half of the century to to visit the country. Yeah. So it's yeah. interesting. So I thought about doing a Theodore Roosevelt Spanish American War trivia question, but I was like, that seems a little tired. So um, I, I I grabbed this little nugget, and I thought I thought it was interesting though that you know that like I said, the the last sitting president was Coolidge of all people, which. That's that the, the visit actually wasn't even significant by any stretch uh, of the imagination. I mean, at least comparatively speaking to the, to the, the the controversial topic that Cuba has been over, like I said, the the last you know the last fifty years or so, which is which is crazy. Um, so here's here's a question I wanted to ask. I know we kind of passed on it, but I, I again with your interest not necessarily in the geopolitical space of U.S. trade relations. Do you think so? Do you think the the some of the uh, some of the strides that were made under the Obama administration helps or hurt the causes that would further, for lack of a better term, more freedom, uh, politically speaking, in in the country of Cuba, or do you think it actually did it a disservice? Yeah, I mean, I think that there were things that happened. During that administration, okay, hold on. Um, I I think that there were things, there were developments, there were changes, just to the 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 reality of people's lives that were on net good. Um, the biggest among them expanded access to the internet. Uh, I don't know how much. I would. Uh, I don't know how different that would have played out 
had another president uh, been uh, in the White House at that time. So I don't know how much of that I would ascribe, how much of uh, of that positive change I would ascribe to Obama policy. I know that some Obama, Obama policy, you know, contributed to that, but I think that was the internet just being such a critical component of the way of life of anyone in the world who can access it. I think they're just, it was just a Cuba was on a collision course with the internet. Um, in that sense, I think, but let's just say that, you know, because it happened around then we can ascribe it to, uh, to Obama policy. I would say that that's, you know, Cuba is better off with more internet than, than less internet access. Um, I don't, let me answer it this way. I think that the embargo as currently constituted doesn't make very much sense at all. Right. I do think that Cuba, I can, I, I'm, I find more compelling arguments that Cuba would be better off either with a legitimate embargo where the regime was forced to actually account for the consequences of the scarcity that it imposes on its own people. Yeah. Uh, rather than being able to use the buffer of other countries stepping in. And by the way, effectively stealing from other countries, you know, the, the, the that, that Cuba is able to buy from the U S on a cash up front basis or from U S firms on a cash up front basis is sort of unique uh right like most most places you you're extending some credit but the people of uh, spain for instance uh have found themselves having to pay for the fact that cuba doesn't pay its debts uh mm. that the cuban government doesn't pay its debts so you know to open trade with this regime that operates in such an abnormal, perverse sort of way. I don't know. I, I think to me, it's, it's sort of an all or nothing thing, either, tr either normalize it all the way or treat them like, or treat the Cuban state like the pariah. It deserves to be treated like, uh, and force it to, uh, to change in a, in a way that, uh, that is responsive to you know what its people are calling for when all these protests in cuba broke out in the summer of 2021 uh you know was it sparked by material need and uh and energy shortages and what have you yes but when people went out into the streets what they were chanting was a broader diagnosis of their problem which was they were chanting for freedom they weren't chanting we want power they weren't chanting we want better food rations they were chanting we want freedom because even the people of cuba know that that's the core of the problem, mm. you know? So I think the more, the more you give the Cuban government an out, uh, the more they'll always take opportunities to open and close the freedom spigot. Just, mm. just enough to keep themselves there. Here's a, here's a question I didn't get to ask you last time. Cause it actually hadn't happened. I mean, a very big thing happened since the last time we talked. You know, Fidel Castro died. Yep. And the city of Miami, I mean, you know, 
woke up and 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 in in a, in a in a very organic and beautiful way because you know like when things like that happen you know i mean people riot when their team wins the championship it wasn't like that and and i mean if there was ever <laughs> you know if there was ever an emotion uh a hot button emotion to that to trigger people to to go the wrong way and in, in, in something like that it would have been this but it was it was a very beautiful and organic uh celebration you know um yeah. i mean it, it's hard it's hard to celebrate death but when it but what it signaled to the years of oppression and, and the separation of families and the imprisonment of innocent people and um all the social injustice all the discarding of human rights, civil rights. I mean, where did, yeah, I don't mean to back you into a corner here, Nick, were you, were you okay. on the streets with people? Like where, I mean, were you celebrating with everybody? I mean, what was, what was that like to at least be in the city when that was happening? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, uh, and I'll explain the answer, but I would say yes and no. Uh, so the footage that you probably saw on, on TV or wherever uh, was, you might have been to uh, Versailles, the or Versailles, the Cuban restaurant. Yeah, in sure, Little Havana. sure, sure. So that's like the epicenter of any Cuban American street demonstration uh, or protest uh, in Miami. Sorry, Petey, what are you doing? Uh, and I was there. Uh, I was with somebody who who really wanted to go. I wasn't particularly adamant about going, just because by then Fidel Castro had been out of power for long enough that uh it to I, it didn't really represent in my mind any real impending change i think what you saw on the street maybe like a good analogy I'm trying to think of what a good analogy would be like i imagine a lot of people with experience with the experience of being in north korea uh would feel uh a sort of jubilation or jubilance. I'm not sure which of those is the appropriate word there. So the words are supposed to be my thing, but I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> if if uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, at the death of Kim Jong-un. <sighs> but I think that that's more of an emotional response to what you know you suffered under that person in the same way that, you know, somebody might uh, feel a catharsis if, I don't know, the person who like murdered their kid died they hear they died in prison or something right but like by then the thing is passed and in this case kim jong-il still around mm -hmm. he's still there and you know that the thing has already outlived you know e even though he wasn't literally dead the thing had outlived fidel castro if anything there was a sort of hope that because fidel castro was like the more uh you know the more uh, charismatic of the two brothers. Um, there was a sort of hope that with him would die like a powerful political tool. But again, by then, he'd been out of it. He'd been out yeah. of the game. Uh, he was writing these uh, so-called reflections in the Cuban press that nobody really believed he was writing. Um, so anyway, I, I was on the street. I, I hesitate to say that I was celebrating just because it didn't, it felt like a big deal historically. It didn't feel like a big deal in With terms of like that it would have real consequences. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, you know, 
Hitler suicide or, or the, you know, an assassination of like Stalin or anything right. like that, you know, I mean, where... yeah. Case in point in the summer of 2021, all these protests break out and, and I see some, uh, somebody saying, you know, Cuba, and North Korea, not even close. I, I get it. They're two very different places. It's, a, it's an analogy, it's, you know, uh, yeah. just drawing comparisons. Uh, but in the summer of 2021, protests break out and the uh, Cuban government has since sentenced many, many people who were out on the streets protesting in Cuba to multi-year sentences. So is it North Korea? No, it's not North Korea. We can you know, draw comparisons. And, you know, North Korea is a whole other set of crazy. North Korea is also in large part worse because North Korea doesn't depend on tourism. Cuba, Cuba has to maintain, you know, for PR purposes, because it, it only survives because of the tourism industry. You've got to keep up appearances and and not upset the wrong people and not let your image get too bad. But um, but there are people serving long prison sentences today for protesting on the streets in the summer of 2021. You know, when I was when I was in Cuba in 2008, my first trip to Cuba, one of the people that I met with, and I mentioned this, I, I write about this a little bit in this in the Midnight of Havana story that I share with you, or that I, that is on Cigar Stomp's website. One of the people that I met was a guy who goes by the name Antunes, and he had just gotten out of prison after 17 years uh, uh, for giving a sort of speech during a demonstration in a public park about the UN Declaration of Human Rights and how, in his view, Cuba was in violation of wow. its... Uh, 17 years. 17 years. So when I met him, again, just to like sort of make clear, you know, that, you know, whether it's not as similar to this or that, you know, it is a... It's not just a repressive thing in the sense of like, you know, this soft political whatever. Uh, this guy, Antunes, starts to show me. He like lifts his shirt, lowers a bit his waistband, lifts his pant leg a bit. And he starts to show me all of the scars all over his body from the bite marks from when over the course of 17 years, these people were sipping dogs on him. And what he tells me they would tell him, because this guy is, he is black as night. He is the darkest, one of the darkest men on the planet, which is relevant because he tells me they would tell him this was the consequence of not being more grateful to Fidel Castro for what he'd done for black people in Cuba. So this is like, I'm 37 years old. This is in my lifetime. This is a dude who today is in Miami with his little girl because he can't be in his country because that's what it is. To be. He he did his, you know, he he put his grain of sand in this bucket. You know, he contributed more than anybody could be asked to contribute. And there's people there now contributing in the way that he did. And some of their stories we'll never hear. Some of them are dead. Some of them will be dead soon. Some of them are young girls who are serving prison sentences. This is a real thing. So, you know, are things better necessarily? I, I mean, maybe in some respects things are better. I don't know how much I could give credit to Obama or anybody else's policies. You know, it's just it, it, sometimes it's tough to see that things are on net better. Yeah. You know, 
uh, and I and I'm in contact with some people in Cuba, and and they'll tell you like the scarcity situation is real, you know, uh, and uh, you know it's one thing to debate whether it's you know uh, attributable to certain trade policies of the U.S. or whatever else, but at the end of the day, uh, we're still talking about a country where people, you know, are you still got baseball players defecting. Like yeah. you got people, you know, and, and to defect is not just to decide you want to leave. It's that it is an island prison. They will not let you leave. To defect is to, it's not to, it's not to emigrate, it's to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, they just get on planes and leave, you know, but that's, we're still in that situation, right? It's not just a voting with their feet. It's that you have to break out. Uh, and that's, that's still what we're dealing with today. So it's, it's just tough to say, you know, the things are on net better. There might be like isolated things. Like, of course, it's better to have more access to information than less. But I don't know that they, I think it was really more uh, a calculation of the Cuban government recognizing that there was no isolating the Cuban people from the internet forever, especially given how dependent they are on tourism and the fact that some number of Cubans was going to have contact with people from the outside world. Right. Yeah, there's only so much containment that you can control over time as right. as society continues to develop, even though they've managed to stay kind of in a time vortex of 1950s for as long as they that they have and stuff. Right. Um, okay. Well, I promise we're going to have some fun here, Nick. Right. Uh, there's some fun sticks. But, uh, um, but again, thank you so much. And, I, I, you know, I consider you an expert on the topic. Um, and I think it's I think it's an important important line of discussion to bring up and and, and so I, I appreciate it um um all the perspective that you bring to it um uh, so this next segment is everybody eats sponsored by postania cigars if you always make sure that your servant style is bigger than your appetite everybody will always get theirs postania cigars is more than just great cigars made by cool people they embody an attitude of gratitude and grit with postania everybody eats so nick this uh next segment is, is about food obviously and so uh we have a series of questions uh the one i just picked i just pick at random for each guest each week so here's one we haven't asked in a while um so um what is um what is a what is a food or dish that you love that you wouldn't have tried otherwise if you had not been offered to or forced to by someone else Interesting. Uh, give me just a moment. My my initial, I would say I like foie gras, but it's the first one that comes to mind because I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the most adventurous cedar, um, but I wouldn't say that I'm like, you know, averse to trying new things. Uh, so maybe foie gras just because I probably would not I've gone out of my way to spend what you typically have to spend on foie gras. I probably would have played a little safer with my money and gotten something, gotten things that I knew I liked. And the odds that I ever would have made foie gras at home are slim to none. So that that's a thing that because um, you know, I have this relationship that I do with this company, I've eaten more foie in the last several years than I had in, you know, that that I might otherwise have in my entire life. I love foie gras. Holy cow. Yeah. It's fantastic. So the at Ariette, the like signature thing for a long time has been a, a foie dish where um, I don't know if you're a fan of sweet plantains, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's seared foie gras 
with a sweet plantain pave, right? So a very thin sliced sweet pave uh, stacked. And then it's got a um, uh, sort of like temptation caramel is what they call it, drizzled over the whole thing. It's a good time. It's a very that good time. Sounds fantastic. I'm down yeah. for that. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Delicious, man. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Our next segment is brought to you by Asylum Cigars. Refuge is more than just a physical place. It can be a state of mind. Some of life's greatest reflections can are found can be found in our own personal asylum. Moments like these were made for Asylum Cigars. So light up an asylum and choose your refuge. Now, Nick, this is a this segment talks about you know again we've talked a lot about uh, your this you know the uh, the lounge that you're a part of and you know our time even getting to know each other was built in a in a very community setting. Cigars are very community based. Oftentimes, more than more than likely than not, a majority of our cigar smoking is around other people. It's just the nature of them. It's what's probably one of the most endearing things about the industry in general, anyway. Um, but every so often, you know, we, we have the opportunity to smoke alone, and sometimes it's just a simple what I just described earlier in the read. It's just a moment of reflection. Sometimes it's a celebration of something, but it's a probably it, you know more often than not when if we get the opportunity to sit down and smoke a cigar by ourselves without anybody else. There's a, it's, it's memorable for one reason or another. So you probably had several of these in your lifetime. Um, but uh, just what one comes, grab one that comes to mind. Uh, tell us what that moment was about. And if you can remember what you were smoking. So the question is a memorable, a memorable cigar, a memorable cigar that where you were smoking alone, where I was smoking alone. The first one that comes to mind, I was at the University of Missouri, and it was my first winter living in Missouri. Uh, and I was walking around the University of Missouri campus with a cigar. And it's memorable because it was the first time that it had really, uh, that I had felt my fingers, that I realized how bad an idea was to just like recreationally walk around in the cold because when i went to ash my cigar i realized i had zero finger control and i could not bring my index finger down to tap my cigar and oh my god that feeling of just realizing i'm no longer in control of my fingers uh has never left my mind i will never forget that feeling of looking at my hand and realizing i am there's just whatever connection should exist between my brain and my finger is not there. And I can't ash my cigar. That's insane. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, I've, I've been cold. I've smoked a cigar in, in what I would consider bitter cold conditions. Yeah. Um, never have I ever had the inability to, to to move digits <laughs> it, it was it was also just me being an idiot miamian like not realizing oh most people would realize oh okay yeah of course that's what's going to happen if you're walking around gloveless for this much time in the cold but you know i was dumb and uh that's what happened so that's the first one that comes to mind uh i don't do a lot of smoking alone to be honest with you most people don't uh, uh, well yeah. that's why it's what that's why i think it's a unique question yeah um, it, if I'm smoking alone, usually I'm just uh, uh, getting worked on my computer on my front porch, but it's not usually that interesting a situation. Most of my away from home smoking is is with somebody. Do you 
whether it's with cigar snob or not, do you do most of your writing with a cigar? Um, no, no, I'll do okay. other work. I'll do other work with a cigar only because, um, I find that it'll just go out too much. If I'm smoking a cigar, I've got to be, uh, if I'm working with a cigar, it's the more mindless stuff. Like for example, if I'm, uh, reviewing podcast footage and I've only got to pause occasionally if I see something wrong or or maybe I'm reading something for research purposes. But if my hands are engaged in writing, I don't like having to come back to the cigar. Got it. You know, it's uh, uh, I'm, I'm not a good multitasker in that sense. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. What uh, do you remember? What cigar it was that you froze your ass off with in that first winter? Oh man, it was. If I had to guess, I would say it was a Padron. And the reason I would I would guess that is not just that I was smoking a lot of them at the time, but um, the first time that I was ever uh, rewarded with a some sort of good of value for a thing I had written, I at the time I had a blog um, that I was keeping, and I wrote a post about uh, like the call it emotional and personal significance of cigars as a way of connecting to Cubanness uh, when I was so far from it in Miami, no, because mm -hmm. I was being in Missouri and somehow or another, this made it to the Padrones and they sent me a, a box of, it might've been three thousands signed. So, uh, and I was, I remember I was, I'm pretty sure I was living on campus and I, I smoked, you know, one of those a week. So I wasn't smoking every day when I was in college, but um, it, it, more than likely it was uh, a Padron, maybe from that box. Nice. Fantastic. Well, um, Nick, this is uh, this is the end of our evening. We have one last question, of course. All right. Um, and uh, that, of course, is our Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust curveball questions. Fastballs or curveballs, it doesn't matter since the company's inception. Steve Sock has been knocking them out of the park. Count them up nine consecutive years in the consensus top three. Congratulations to our good friend, Mr. Steve Saka. Um, Before this curveball question, though, Nick, I'm just going to be asking, are you going to be, uh, will you be in attending uh, PCA trade show uh, this coming month, uh, upcoming month? I won't, no. No. We we have a pretty clear idea of uh of what the expansion of our selection is is gonna look like, and uh, I think if we're investing in travel right now, it's probably remember I'm I'm the only one in the company who has had this experience, so I'm more interested in putting our resources and taking whatever free time I can wrangle from these guys to getting them to either SLE or the DR to visit some of these factories and farms and. They've never had that experience. I don't know that we would, at this exact moment, uh, get enough of a return on the on the trip to Vegas for that. Well, hopefully, it'll be a little closer next year. It'll be in New Orleans, so hopefully, maybe you guys can get sure, convince yeah. the guys right. down there. And I think, uh, um, yeah, New Orleans, New Orleans is a danger. I remember the last time I was in New Orleans for a trade show. That's a dangerous town to get all the cigar industry guys together. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll say. Plus, that convention center I hear is like walking, uh, walking a marathon from one side to the other. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to over the next, uh, the next twelve months or so to help yeah. lose some more lbs and and get some really good walking shoes. Just Vegas keeps everyone contained, you know, yeah. to places where 
but New Orleans means that you get how you get, and then you're let loose onto the streets to find your way back. To... <laughs> you got to move through a city after all of that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, all right. So the, here's my curveball question uh, for you, Nick. So let's fast forward to a time, um, but uh, let's, I mean, keep it irrelevant. Maybe not necessarily your golden years, but uh, to a time where you're still a relatively young enough person to where it, May or may not may or may not make sense depending on how you answer this question, but let's say things in Cuba change, right? Right. Uh, and they change for the better. They change exactly how you and a lot of the activists uh, and um, activist groups that you've been involved when you know change. So that means free elections, you know, you know, uh, and and a lot of you know, act, you know. A lot of more civil, you know, civil rights are granted back to people. Political prisoners are freed. No more political imprisonments. All the whole nine yards, right? Um, I'm not saying a democracy is put in place or anything like that, but everything that you've been fighting for and 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 activating for for your entire adult life, and many have many people have for their entire lives, like we said, generations and decades upon decades, um, is achieved. Would you consider, would you ever consider moving back? Would you ever, not back, would you ever consider moving to Cuba because you've never lived there? Uh, would I ever? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't write it off. The, the only reason that I'm hesitating is that I actually, I mean, I like being in Miami a lot. Um, but it's also close enough that, like, could I conceive of splitting my time? Or if some opportunity came up, could I go there? You know, could I imagine moving there? I also wouldn't be that far from Miami, so it's like I might as well be in Orlando or something. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be out of hand, completely opposed to that under those circumstances. Yeah. Interesting. Is there a place? I, is there a place in the world you would move to? Since you love, even though you love Miami so much. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm not. I'm not more interested in living anywhere. Uh, than I am in being in Miami. I would say, actually, funny that we just brought it up. I have said uh, on, uh, I, I have said it often. Uh, if I had to be somewhere other than Miami, New Orleans would probably be uh, in the next. Interesting. Spot of yeah. What do you What do you sure. love about New Orleans so much? Um, I love that it is. It's the only city in the U.S. with a culture that's completely its own. Um, uh, it's not. Uh, you know, where like you go to New York or LA or even Miami and uh, to the, yeah. And and to the extent that they're um, yeah, they're culturally rich. It's drawing from different places, right? It's almost, it's like more of a stew yeah, than it's a, a melting, melting pot. pot. Yeah. Oh, or a stew. You know? Ooh, I like that metaphor. You know, cause, okay, you, that cause, makes you've, sense. cause you've got these on, like you go to New York and you've got great pizza and you've got great yeah, Chinese. Little Italy and Chinatown. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and in the arts, you've got things from here. Things you go to New Orleans, and New Orleans is a place where, of course, it didn't just spring out of nothing. But New Orleans is a place where things melted into each other and outsprang this thing you will not find anywhere else. Right. And most people's favorite things about New York are things that New York does that come from someplace else, and you can draw a pretty direct line. Mm. New, New Orleans is not a collection of things from other places or a copy of something or even a thing that other people are capable of copying. New Orleans is uniquely New Orleans. Uh, and I love that uh, about it. I also like 
the you know and, and i'm not somebody who puts you know I don't, I don't need to be i'm I'm not i don't live in an urban area you know, i don't need to be like an urbanite but i do love the feeling of walking through new orleans uh and you know we've been talking about cuba all this time the last time i was in new orleans i was it's been a long time i think the last time i was there i was with uh and the astencio again uh the cigar snob art director and he mentioned, and I agree, New Orleans is the closest thing in the U.S. to walking through Old Havana. Uh, oh, well, that's it's a unique comparison. Just in, in the sense that, like, you walk around, like, where is there left in the U.S. that you walk through the streets of a legit city and there's life in the street and there's people doing stuff on stoops, but it's still, like, a, it's a low-to-the-ground old city, you know, Um it's it just aesthetically, culturally, the life on the street, the the way people interact with each other. It's it it is the thing that has reminded me the most of, you know, reminded me the most of a little time I was in Havana. And from what he told me, at least at the time, reminded him the most of his time living in Havana. That's awesome. awesome. And also the food. I mean, I like to eat and I mean, it's tough to beat food in New Orleans. That's awesome. Well, I, ho- I hope to see you next year uh, at that trade show. I think that would be a really cool perspective uh, to have Mike and 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 the and, and members of the group to come down and experience that. But I think, man, if you could ever, I'll we'll talk a little bit offline. I have a couple of ideas for you for a couple of people. I know you have great connections, but just some really great learning experiences that they can benefit cool. from uh, well, if you want to take them down to to, to in country a little bit. Sure, so. Dude. Well, fantastic. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us tonight and our audience for staying up late with us as always. Uh, just a really, it was just so good catching up with you, man. And then so exciting to have you back. Um, you know, I, I say this often, you know, when people leave and then they come back, I'm like, I always tell them, you know, it seems like a tired compliment, but I'm like, the industry's better with you back, man. It really is. Oh, man. With good, with good people, um, there's always just... Um, the industry's better with good people who are, you know, incredibly, you know, incredibly smart. Uh, insightful and 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 caring uh, to this industry, you know, and I, and, and I know you care about it, so it's 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 great to have you back. And, and I appreciate that. Well. I appreciate that. And I'll, I'll before we close here, I want to make sure that I take an opportunity. I was actually talking with Reinhard, uh, who who you know said hello to you before we started recording the thing or, or mm-hmm. uh, streaming it. Like the thing you're doing is super cool, man. The thing you're doing and you've been doing for a while. I'm like continually uh, impressed by you know um it's it's crazy that i'm in in, on this thing at all because i see this who's who of cigar people uh and i think you know it's the the fact that your guest list uh that the roster of past guests is what it is is a testament to uh you know how much people value you here and how much you have how much trust you've earned in the business you know because people are are giving you people whose time is way more valuable than mine a lot of them are giving a lot of that time to Mm -hmm. you and i think that that's a huge testament you know to the fact that like people see what you're doing and they really value it uh and and the the stuff that you're uh you're you're good you're good at this and and people are right to trust you with their time Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind, Nick. Uh, yeah, no, I I can't believe this is this this is our two hundred and eighty second take, man. And it like it, it it's it's unbelievable that I've done two hundred and eighty two of these. And you know, later the show later this year we'll do we'll hit three hundred, and that's just insane to me. Crazy, just yeah. insane. Um, 
just unbelievable. Um, and like you said, the, the people that I've had the opportunity, you know, my 200th take was, was Carlito Fuente. My 250th cool. take was Nick Perdomo. My 100th take was Pete Johnson. Pete's been on several times now, but that was at the time when I was on my way to a hundred takes, it was like, like it was really, I wanted Pete. And I was like, I, I really want you for this show. And he's like, yeah, of course I'll do it. And I was like, Oh my God. And that was the first time I still reflect on this. It was really great. Um, at the time it was a freaking nightmare it was the first time my internet had ever gone down during the middle of a show and oh, Pete, Pete to his credit man just hung in there uh, because Zoom's really great it doesn't kick the show off it's, uh, it was still going live streaming on Facebook and so like people were just like lambasting him with questions and he was just sitting there answering them and everything like that and I, I was finally able to get back on and um, I mean, yeah, I mean, for my 100th take, it was supposed to be so special. It's definitely memorable. It definitely wasn't my best just because of the, the technical snafu that I had. But that was that it, it was it was a calamity of, of memorable proportion. Let's just put it that way. But it was nice. It was nice nonetheless. So but thank you for the kind words. And, and I look forward to, to seeing all the things that you do uh, with Elvisino and, 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 and beyond that. So I'm really excited for that. So. Uh, for everyone out there, again, we really do appreciate our audience. Thanks for tuning in and staying up late with us as always. Uh, you can always check us out every Sunday night at 930 Central at on, on our Facebook Live page, which is where we're broadcasting now, Alos Fumar. Uh, you can always check out our YouTube channel as well, Alos Fumar. Um, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. If, but if you're listening to us later, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts, including iHeartRadio, don't forget to download, subscribe, and review. If you already are a subscriber, do me a favor, hit unsubscribe. But don't forget to hit resubscribe because that really helps my numbers. And if you think I suck like the guy who gave me a one star on Apple Podcasts, you know, it'd be really helpful if you tell me why. You know, that way I can actually learn something from it other than you just thinking I'm suck, you know, that, that I'm suck and I'm terrible. So, um, and as I butcher the English language here at the end of the night there, but that, yeah, that would be great. One Feedback star. is fantastic. I would love it. So, um, that being said, we do really appreciate everyone as always. Uh, and just like I, we mentioned just before, this was our 282nd take. Can't believe I've done 282 of these. We're on the road to 300. I'm Barry Duplissy as always, live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studio of Azel, Texas. He's Nick Mendez. Guess what, everybody? We'll see you next time.